The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone had a fantastic Thanksgiving, folks. My wife said, no, you can't record the day before Thanksgiving, which was my mother's birthday, or on Thanksgiving, so I didn't get to do it. But today, it is Friday night going into Saturday morning. It is Black Friday, so I decided to bring my father on the show who is nigerian so it makes sense for this to be black <laughs> friday <laughs> so it's quite interesting folks you've all been following the ongoing stories of my son william being born and it's amazing that handsome little fella brought together my mom and my dad who are divorced and they've been together on a few occasions uh over the last several years but it was pretty amazing to see them my mom did not kill my father my father attempted to kill my mother but that did not happen the car wouldn't start <laughs> the car wouldn't start all right so my father's here with me today i always talk shit about him on this show no and then we did the uh overcoming adversity episode my wife and i's journey surviving the rockefeller medical industrial complex of the hospital and i told you guys that name came from my father overcoming adversity so today we're going to talk a little bit about his uh history as a police officer uh, as a private investigator, I've mentioned to you many times in the show, that is where I sort of picked up on picking apart these stories and going into the history of eugenics and technocracy and transhumanism was uh, growing up driving around with him when I was two years old, stopping at cop bars uh, and Polish clubs and Italian clubs where they would shoot darts. So how are you today, Father? Good. That's pretty good. That wasn't bullshit either. That, that was true what you just said. <laughs> yeah. But I used to leave you in the car. For, for like five hours because i didn't want you to see anything that we were doing it's very secretive well i remember it's a closed society well i remember this one bar it's called rudy's it's still around i think but not the same thing anymore but that's where a lot of yaleys from yale university hung out a lot of the cops yep. and there was a guy named hank there who had long hair he was like a a hippie had a piece of peyote around his neck and yep. he had a dog named badger and we used to feed it cheese i remember yep. that yeah, and he, and he owned uh, contiguous to uh, Rudy's, uh, his own Mexican food restaurant, Poco Loco. So um, uh, Hank uh, lived up on a hill in uh, Wallingford, a rural part of Connecticut, um, not too far from where we lived in, also a fairly rural part of Connecticut. But Hank would hunt deer and uh, grow corn, and but he could put a roof on a house he could cook enchiladas he can do uh you know sell you uh like a quarter gram of friggin cocaine he could do anything that uh, a guy would want done back in those days it, he's a very all-around kind of guy a woodsman uh ladies man 
uh pretty interesting cat i had a lot of really crazy interesting friends so he was a uh mexican before there were mexicans here in the united states he he was one of the first ones that came in across the border uh undetected <laughs> so that was a crazy place now I want to go back because um, I, I've mentioned to the audience before, was it late 70s, early 80s, uh, you were a cop and attempted to take on City Hall. So it's, it's quite interesting because we talk a lot about uh, the show, local politics, and stop focusing on uh, federal politics, national politics. And then I told the story about how I attempted to take on City Hall for a two-year period in my late 20s, uh, but you did it. Uh, when you were a cop. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that story. Um, well, I went on the job in 1974. Um, I was uh, 23 years old. I turned 24 while we were in the academy. At that time, police work was um, a very sought-after career, at least around where I, I lived. In New Haven, with Yale and then with all of the the ghetto type of areas, there, it was fairly high crime, uh, urban area that had pockets of wealth. And then obviously Yale University were Supreme Court justices and presidents of the United States to be walked around in and out of bars. Um, it was a very interesting place. Um, I believe that there were 600 applicants for my class, and there were 35 of us that made it. That's that's how uh, that's how difficult it was maybe to become a cop. But a lot of it was politics. So based on ethnicity, um, certain of the police commissioners would have a certain number of picks for the blacks, for the Jews, for the Italians. Uh, and oftentimes you would almost need to have gone through someone who knew someone or you knew someone or whatever to make it through the oral, the oral part of the police exam was the part where the politics snuck in. Long story short, I made it because a friend of mine knew a Jewish guy and I'm half Jewish, half Italian that owned a hotel and was on the board of police commissioners and they needed another Jew or two to fill their quota. And uh, anyway, I, I, I was on the job. I loved the job. I was a great, I thought a great cop. I got commendations. I, I really enjoyed what I was doing. It came and I, and I volunteered to work in probably one of the busiest um, um, uh, pockets of crime called the Hill Section uh, of New Haven. Uh, I had a regular car there after my um, two rookie years, and uh, I was doing really well. The thing that I started to learn, though, as I got older, so by this time I'm 26, 27 years old, been on the job about three years, most of the guys who trained us when we first came on, my class was uh, was 35 guys, 35 cops, but we had the first women police officers. So we were followed by the news media. We had about six girls, um, five or six girls. So the, all the local news media followed us during our training uh, to our physical training and some of um, our classroom and this and that, focusing on the fact that women could become cops. The other thing my class was was the first class that had a 
predominantly college-educated group of people. Though we were physical and strong, um, there were no little wimps. Even the women were okay. But we were trained by a group of cops that came on the job 25 and 30 years earlier, post-World War II. And these were big, giant, physical men, not necessarily able or capable readily of writing a, a search warrant, a, a report writing of this or that. A lot of their stuff was knowing the street, knowing the people, using the... The nightstick, we had a nightstick in a black jack at the time. Um, Mace, Mace had just kind of come about, but we never had tasers. We didn't have body cams or any of that stuff. And uh, so we learned from them. And so it was kind of a pretty much of a physical uh, police, pol policing. Now, with my class injecting into the 400 and... 15-person New Haven Police Department was a group of 35 guys that were quote-unquote college-educated guys and women. So it kind of created a new environment for the older people. And those who were already supervisors, captains, lieutenants, and sergeants, many of them had come from that older group, and so they were a little bit intimidated maybe by the... We had one guy... Uh, uh, he he ended up leaving the job and became a lawyer. Um, you know, he just left after like four months. His name is Wick Chambers. They believe that he just infiltrated. He he was a Yale guy. Okay, so he was a Yale grad, and he was there just wanted to be a New Haven cop. You know that how does that make sense? But <laughs> long story short, there was camaraderie and there was trust on and. Uh, everything went along quite well, but I started to realize uh, probably by my third year that there were a number of mopes, idiots, uh, political hacks that were promoted to the positions of sergeant and lieutenant that you really did not want to be led by, put it that way. Hmm. Um, an incident occurred in the hill section where I live on a real hot, humid August night, maybe six, seven o'clock at night, still light out, but this was a, like the most dangerous part of town or whatever, and it came in as a man with a shotgun, man with a shotgun um, running from a house, and long story short, I had a, um, a reserve officer. Reserve officers are cops who are like, they're not cops, they're trainees, they don't have guns or anything, they wear the uniform, they want to become cops, and they get get a chance to ride along with a police officer and, and learn a lot of things, and, and at some point in time, they hope to make the police department. I had one of those fellows with me in my car, and another of my uh, co-cop uh, uh, buddies, uh, he had one also, so we race over to this location, um, 19 Baldwin Street, and lo and behold, hot, humid, uh, all-black neighborhood. Uh, uh, there's a pickup truck there, and just as I get there, with lights and siren on, I see an older gentleman just jumping into this pickup truck, old, an old pickup truck. God, it must have been 1950-something pickup truck. And uh, I run over to the truck, and I reach in, and I could tell the guy was drunk, but long story short, I don't know if this is the guy with the shotgun or not. We, we, we don't know that. Meanwhile, the street starts filling up with people. They're all coming out into the street and starting to surround us. By coincidence, as 
probably three police cars arrived, but of the three, two of us had, we, we always ride one guy and only one guy in a car, but because we had reserve officers, now all of a sudden there's five or six uniform bodies. They all happen to be white. So now we have all the black people that live in the neighborhood. We got the black guy, Mr. Koger, in the pickup truck, and we don't know if he has a gun. Meanwhile, I reach into the truck. I'm telling the guy, stop the truck, stop the truck, stop the truck. He won't stop the truck. He starts to drive away. I reach in. I reach through the steering wheel. I pull the keys out of the ignition. The truck stops. Now I figure this guy, something's up. I open the door. We struggle. I end up pulling him out of the truck. He smashes his head on the curb and lays there like he's dead, unconscious. Now the crowd around me goes totally, completely bananas. By this time, we got 30 or 40. We're surrounded. It looks like a movie, you know, like... uh, Well, Well, it looks like uh, anything we've seen in the last few years since the rise of Black Lives Matter. Raymar the Jungle, you know, like one of those deals, okay? So now, so we're surrounded by... We still don't know anything about a shotgun. We just know that this guy resisted us. He was drunk. He was trying to drive away. Um, the complainants in these cases, oftentimes, they disappear. So after they call, unlike the technology that we have today with caller ID and this and that, now they realize, uh-oh, a whole bunch of cops came. The guy got in trouble. I ain't going out there and telling him, thank you, officer, for saving my life. So they just they just disappear. So now you don't even have a complainant. You have an old man laying against a curb with his head smacked. My sergeant pulls up. <clears throat> and before you know it, we're ready to go to battle. We're, all, we're, we're in a circle, all the cops. We're surrounded by two or three deep these people have kitchen utensils forks you know one guy had a shovel like a snow shovel friggin <laughs> august the guy's got a snow shovel they're all surrounding us now this wasn't something that we were like unusual or unaware of we worked in this area we knew what, what went on this you got to remember this is the 70s this is this isn't post george floyd this is like the way it was back in 1976 1977 my sergeant comes up to me and in front of all these people points his finger in my face and he says cool it cool it instead of turning around and being on our team and telling the hood to back off this man laying here is under arrest we're taking him in the wagon he's going uh he did not do that long story short we end up getting out of there we end up with the truck lo and behold the shotguns in the truck behind the seat he must have put it in there just as i walked up to the truck the shotgun who he was going to shoot somebody in that friggin house who was going out with his niece or something it was like a typical domestic drunk summertime hot humid I got a shotgun, I'll blow you away. Somebody calls the police, he runs out to the truck, hides his shotgun, he thinks he's going to drive off. We got there just in the nick of time. So this is all over. We drive away, the guy's arrested, we got the truck. Now I've had it up to here with this sergeant. I go back to the police station. I go out of service. You can go out of service so you're not available for radio call. I spent the next three hours writing, I think it was either three pages or five pages anyway, 
I turned the sergeant in. Now it never hurt. It's never. It's never. It never been done before. A, a patrol turning in his sergeant for incompetence, uh, lack of supervision, and cowardice. <laughs> Three charges. I get it all typed up. I hang it on the book. So by this time, our shift is almost over by 12 o'clock. By the time the guys start coming back in the book off so they can get out to the bars before they close, on every bulletin board, the, the detective division, detention, patrol division, is this memo hanging up, me turning in Sergeant Listro. Oh, the friggin' police department goes totally crazy. Now I'm enemy number one. So... The party starts. He turns me in. The next thing you know, uh, I get called to the chief's office. This goes on for a number of, of weeks. I have a hearing. Uh, we prevail in the hearing because all of the other cops testified in my behalf. And I end up beating the city in a hearing of which I had a public hearing. The city does not like to have public hearings. They hadn't had one in like friggin' 20 years. I forced them to have a public hearing and embarrass themselves for the politics that they were playing. And they were only covering because he was a sergeant, I'm a patrolman. If a patrolman is allowed to turn in an incompetent, politically corrupt sergeant who doesn't know what he's doing on the street and gets scared of other people, God, we're going to have a big problem because there's 250 patrolmen on the job. Long story short... Uh, I get away with it. I think I got like two days off or whatever. Now I'm on their wanted list. I'm on the New Haven Police Department wanted list. So another uh, four or five months go by. Thanksgiving Day. My wife's birthday. The one that I, the, the wife that I just was with yesterday. And, and this morning, uh, it's her birthday, November 23rd, 1978. I have the day off. My best friend has the day off. He's a cop also. Vietnam, three tours, special forces, hired assassin, tremendous guy. Billy Burke, we're driving to Rhode Island uh, on Thanksgiving morning at 5 o'clock in the morning. To surprise our family and buy these giant six, eight, nine pound lobsters. There's a commercial lobster house there. This and that. We're going to bring them back home, and our our respective families are making turkey dinner and this and that. And we're going to give our wives these big giant turkeys. I mean, these big giant uh, lobsters to put on the table with the turkeys. As we're driving on the highway, the gun goes off. My gun, not my police department gun. My gun goes off, and the bullet goes in my hand. Out here, under my car seat, lands in the floorboard of my of my car. My hand's bleeding, but I'm fine and alive. That starts a whole new investigation by the police department. That's that's when they said, "Okay, it's Thanksgiving Day." <laughs> the the Connecticut State Police had happened on the highway. Uh, I was perfectly fine. Fortunately, didn't blow my friggin' hand off. But they had to call the New Haven Police Department to make sure that me and Bill were cops because we got a gun, a guy got shot, we tell them we're cops, uh, we show them identification, but they call the police department. The police department said, oh, Lou Gold, we're finally going to get him now. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, they launch a major 
internal affairs investigation. They send out three detectives 40 miles from the city of New Haven, where I'm a cop, searching all over for bank robberies, holdups, gun uh, reports, and this and that, trying to get me to get even with me <laughs> for what I did to the sergeant months earlier and embarrassed the police department. This is the politics of the job at the time. The city of New Haven at that time was run by a big Yale guy. He was the, um, the mayor, Frank Logue. Okay, so everything and anything was run through the Democratic Party at that time. Uh, Yale was all Democratic. The chief who was elected, who was uh, put in a position at that time, Ed Marone, who I used to be uh, very good friends with, uh, he was got to do everything that he's told to do. And bango, they, this investigation is launched. It goes on for... Uh, well, it actually goes on for almost a month, but the very next day I go back to work. I have a tube in my hand for drainage. Um, I cannot work as, in patrol, so I work in CCS, the complaint section, answering phones. But my lovely wife that I was with today, by total coincidence, on my birthday, two months earlier, a new uh, device had come out on the market called a microcassette recorder. You may, may or may not remember them, but they had the little tapes. And uh, she bought me one for, for, for my birthday. And that morning when I'm leaving to go to work, she used to call me honey back then. She said, honey, make sure you bring your tape recorder with you. <laughs> I said, why? She says, well, I have a funny feeling when you go to work tomorrow, uh, this morning, because they let me work the day shift. When they go to work this morning, they're going to start asking you questions. Sure, shit, I wasn't at work for more than one hour. The sergeant from uh, Sergeant Kuntz from uh, Internal Affairs comes up to the complaint section. That's where you answer phones and dispatch police cars and everything. And he said, I'm ordering you down to Internal Affairs. I said, oh, my God. I didn't even know how to turn the friggin' tape recorder on. I turned the tape recorder on. And I said, I have a right to remain silent, this and that, blah, 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 blah. He says, I'm ordering you. I said, well, you can order whoever you want, blah, blah, blah. From that point on, for the next three weeks, every meeting, every conversation I had with the chief of police, both on the phone, because in Connecticut, you only need one party uh, um, uh, permission at that time to tape record. And in person, I would put the tape recorder on the desk. I taped every single conversation I had. Every time they tried to double team me and uh, do this and do that, try to force me to give them a statement. We already gave a statement to the state police. You know, me and Bill, we told them what happened. They tried to do everything they could to flim flam me out of a job i said do whatever you want they finally had a, i made them have another public hearing they fired me they fired me within a matter of four hours uh for insubordination i was insubordinate because i wouldn't give the chief of police a statement about something that he had no business knowing about or having to know about wasn't in his jurisdiction i wasn't on duty five years go by we followed a federal um uh, a federal lawsuit in, uh, in New Haven jurisdiction, Judge Ellen Burns, and because of all those tapes, because the city of New Haven ultimately had to concede that every single one of those tape-recorded conversations and orders that I was given, they had to concede that they were true and accurately recorded, and that what the city of New Haven did 
was unlawful and unconstitutional and had no right to order me to give them a statement. I was found to be not guilty without even a jury trial. It was in summary judgment. The judge decided that uh, the city uh, 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 unconstitutionally uh, discharged me. So that was like, by that time, it was um, 1985 by the time that I, we ultimately had the federal trial. Um, that whole lesson for me, at that time, I was 35 years old. Dustin was four years old. Um, my daughter was two years old. But by age 35, and probably when I got fired by age 29, I had realized that the bureaucracy and administrative world in which I thought I wanted to make a career, and I love police work. I, I do it today. I love the camaraderie. I love the guys. I love the challenge and this and that. It's changed so much now. You would never want to be a cop now. You, you can't get backed up. There's no qualifi qualified immunity. You have nothing protecting you. It's, it's very, very, very sad. That's why the crime is so high. It's cops just don't intelligently so there's no proactive policing any longer and that's really dangerous for a lot of people including the cops but uh i learned at a very early age that um you really don't want to put yourself in a position where the people who control your destiny are political hacks and bureaucrats and people who have they're playing with the house's money it doesn't cost them anything to sue you or fire you there's no personal ramifications for them or against them. It doesn't cost them any money. Uh, so they just fire you or demote you. They don't give a shit whether you win or you lose somewhere down the line as long as they get rid of you. Um, and that was my lesson. And that and that forced me into, I've been working for myself now for the last 40, 45 years. My clients are lawyers and other people. I pick and choose who I, I will work for. Um, I, I'm probably without exaggerating and being cocky but i think I'm, I'm i'm the best at what i do but i think that lesson that i learned early on through the police department um situation it solidified in my mind that you do not want to put yourself in that position and i think a lot of it you know rubbed off on my son because he you know he kind of saw a lot and associated with a lot of my friends most of whom were cops many of whom were lawyers afterwards but you realize, hey, if you can figure out a way to to do do something on your own, it's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of commitment, a lot of investment. Uh, there's ups and downs in this and that, but at least you don't have the situation where someone can take your some political hack, crony, crumb, twerp can take your life, your career, your family, and your money and your mortgage away with a snap of a finger. And, you, and to learn that when you're young is a very important lesson because if, if I had had 25 or 30 years invested in the police department at the time and that happened, you know, uh, that would have made a hell of a lot more, done a lot more damage to me and my family than it would have when you're 29, you have money in the bank and you're, and you're healthy and, and cool and handsome and you have a lot of women. 
Well, I, I, I mean? yeah, but I, yeah, but I think you know, you talk about the bureaucracy being able to snap their fingers. That's whether you're working in the so-called uh, public sector or the private sector. And then look at what just happened over the last two and a half years. You had bureaucrats at the highest levels in the United States government who snapped their fingers, pushed all these edicts down, and then people end up getting fired from their job or having to go get uh, a COVID jab uh, with with the threat of them losing their job. And again, if you're 45, 50, 60, the closer you are into retirement or you know, if you have kids that you're saving money for for college or you've got a mortgage to pay, I know a lot of people that end up having to get jabbed and boosted because in their mind they didn't have a choice. Either their family was going to end up living in a tent. And your self-esteem is, it's, you think of yourself a certain way that you have values and principles. And whether those values and principles include your own your own body, your own physical health, your own, you know, what you eat, what you drink, who you see, who you kiss, who you touch. And all of a sudden, some asswipe is compelling you to stick a needle in your body and put something into it that you know you do not want. But this twerp has the power of taking away from you your friggin' job, which is your money, your food, your car, your home, your kid's college, I mean, to me, that is like one of the worst things in the world because why and how should that person have that power? On the street as a police officer back when I was a cop without tasers and without body cams, uh, if a guy told you he was not getting in that police car, you had to figure out a way to get him in the police car. And if he got away from you, he was a better man than you. And if he didn't get away from you, you're a better man than he was. And yet, fast forward to where we are today with some dweeb telling you, say, take special forces guys, take firefighters, take 911 responders, people who saved this country 22, two and a half, three years ago when everyone was scared of COVID. Firing, having the, having the power to fire these people, to get rid of them, and, or to force them to eat shit when they were very proud people, very strong will people, very brave people, people who wanted to serve their community. There's something unbelievably wrong with that. And what is wrong with that is there are too many people walking this friggin' planet right now, walking our country right now, our state, our city, our town, that don't have any balls and are too afraid to stand up to these people. These people are only as good as you're willing to bend over for them for. They, have no, they can't do anything to you. They're nothing. But we give them power through the bureaucracies that we created. And, um, you know, in my opinion, nothing's ever going to change until people have courage. And every once in a while you'll see on TV or, you know, highlighted on radio or, you know, uh, some of these uh, kind of pretty uh, great, you know, talk shows where they get very interesting guests who are, products of having been fired for standing up for their principles, whether it be a football coach who wants to pray on the field, whether it be a firefighter who's a lieutenant who doesn't want to get a jab, you know, I mean, these are the, these are the kind of people that we should, we should spend more time emulating and having our kids understand that this is, 
this is what it's all about to stand up for what you believe in and there's not enough of that right now it's there's just too much of foul the friggin' bullshit around and bend over for these people and really this has got to stop but we're we're like totally gone we're, we're ruined yeah well it's interesting you bring up that the politics were back in the policing in the 1970s of course there's politics involved with everything going back to the history of mankind everything is always perverted by politics but i wanted to ask you because i remember when i was a kid i think it was in the 1990s in new haven connecticut and this was a major transformation of at least the illusion of the old style policing to what it policing pretty much around the country is today when uh what was that guy's name um that came in under john mayor john de stefano the italian guy who came in and then he got rid of all the police horses and the police dogs uh nick pastor wasn't that his name right so nick pastor was one of the he was in charge of the detective division when i was being fired so a couple of times they tried to double team me and put the chief of police, Eddie Marone, and Nick Pastor in the, in the closed chief's office with me. So it's always two on one. See, back in the old days before tape recorders and this and that, they get you two on one or three on one in an interrogation room or this or that or whatever. They're cops. They're going to freaking lie. Yeah, the guy said that he, uh, you know, that he used the rubber gloves. And the, the guy never said anything. He doesn't even know what rubber gloves are. But then, now they can't get away with it when I had the tape recorder. Well, Nick Pastor was one of those characters who was part of that whole process of political policing. Oh, web power. When you're in charge of the detective division in the city of New Haven, you can pretty much do almost anything. Um, but Pastor got himself into a whole bunch of trouble because, believe it or not, here's an Italian guy with a brother who's also on the job. The brother was um, Lenny. He was pretty pretty good guy. And Nick ends up inseminating a black prostitute i'm talking about having sex with a street walking prostitute and has a child with her buys her shoes and clothes and this and that and this and that and then ends up now mind you now he's the head of the the detective division who is then put in i believe he was a temporary chief of police for a while doing this and having put his name on the birth certificate, put his name on the birth certificate as the father of the baby. Somebody did some research and found out about it. And one morning in the New Haven newspaper, front page of the New Haven newspaper, on one side of the, uh, of the front page, top, is a picture of Nick Pastor. And on the right side is a picture of the black prostitute and the whole story in the middle about how the chief inse- inseminated and fathered uh, a black child. And that was like the end of his friggin' career. I understand his wife, you know, all kinds of stories of what happened. A close-knit Italian neighborhood, that, you know, Italian generation, but- this stuff does not happen. This guy, it was like the downfall of the type of thing that you would like to see to happen to every creep 
who abuses their power and whatever, wherever they work, doesn't have to be a cop or a fireman or whatever, but it was almost like, wow, there is justice in this world, man. You know, you, I mean, how stupid to even have sex with a street walking prostitute and then having a baby and then putting your name on the birth certificate. And, and, but this, and you're the chief of friggin' police and the head of the detective division. Now, how friggin' stupid could that be? Right, but his being outed came after he was chief uh, and totally dismantled yeah. the police department because I remember, I don't want to mention certain people's names, but when I was a he kid, all, there were certain friends of yours that were in charge that he pushed out. Like Lenny, uh, yeah. He, what, <laughs> well, yeah. Here's what he did. He, he sent here, one guy to the dog pound. <laughs> here's what he did. When he came in... As a pawn of the Yale of the Yale Democratic, at that time it would be called Progressive too, I guess, a social engineering operation. He demoted the five or six guys who were commanders at the time. A commander was a position that was the second, actually the third highest in the New Haven Police Department. Above them were majors. There would be four, three or four majors. One of them was like one of my best friends. Two or three of the commanders were my best friends. But he came in and he dismantled all of them. They tried to give these guys a golden handshake to hit the road because these were people who were promoted years earlier that were not necessarily in line with the new administration. This is politics again, the way it works. So they gave every single one of them that would agree to retire from the police department uh, an additional sum of money, which we called the, like the golden handshake, and they would leave. One of my buddies, who happened to be my sergeant when I first started working in the Hill, he said, no, I ain't leaving. <laughs> And uh, Pastor said, no, no, you got to leave. Everybody's leaving. All you guys are leaving. You're retiring now and this and that. Lenny, the commander, said, nah, I ain't leaving. He's Italian also, Lenny, as stubborn as was Pastor. So a short time thereafter, like within a matter of days, Lenny gets a memo in his mailbox from the chief that, that he's reassigned. So Lenny was the commander at that time. Uh, what was Lenny in charge of? I don't know if he was in charge of patrol, which would have been like 250 guys, uh, or another larger portion of the police department. He is now sent to the dog pound, animal shelter. He's, he's now a commander in charge of the New Haven animal shelter with three civilian employees picking up dogs, euthanizing them and cleaning dog cages. I said, oh my God, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy Lenny, he's definitely going to leave. Nope, no way. So I used to go down and visit him all the time at the, at the animal shelter. I said, Lenny, Lenny, like you're commander and you're down there. He says, I don't give a shit. I love dogs. He says, I got, he was having a lot of fun. I said, Pastor must be like really, really pissed about you're not leaving. He goes, I don't care. I don't care. After about six months of Lenny down there, all of a sudden this article comes out in the newspaper <clears throat> with the picture of the prostitute and the chief and a copy on second page of the birth certificate, a photocopy of the birth certificate listing the mother and the father. I said to myself, I know this is Lenny. I know this is Lenny. I know this was payback. <clears throat> 
He never admitted it. Oh, he never yeah. admitted it. The problem with Pastor is he had like 400 enemies. So it could have been anyone. But I always wished and hoped that it was Lenny because what greater way of getting even with somebody and then exposing them for the truth, yeah. for the truth of something, not setting them up. Exposing him for the truth. Well, let me let me ask you this: Back when you were a cop, and then those guys that you said you learned um, about the job from, sort of the post World War II yeah. era guys, did people that were police in New Haven back then generally live in New Haven? Because one of the things I wonder is if you live in the city, at least back then, when you're out working, you're basically being hired by the citizens of the city to then to protect, protect your own city, your, where you live, versus what I would see in Tennessee or what I see here in Frederick County, Maryland sometimes, is there will be a Frederick County, Maryland police car parked in a, in, in a driveway an hour from here. Or in Tennessee, I would see cop cars in different counties that went with the other counties. And when, it, when you're doing that, it's almost like you're going into the just another jungle, like you're going off to Vietnam to fight. You're not really protecting your own community. Do you think a lot of that has sort well, of changed the way policing work over the years? Here, here's the deal. Um, when I first got on there, I'm trying to think whether there was or was not a residency requirement. Remember, prior to the big affirmative action <clears throat> move and all the politics surrounding it, and a lot of the racial inequities that existed in inner cities where blacks oftentimes were abused or ignored or mistreated, not just by police, but by tax by the tax people, by the government, by anything. You know, it was like it was it, it was it was just the way things were back then. One of the reasons to initiate residency requirements in certain urban areas wasn't necessarily for the reason you just said, which makes sense. Because yes, you're going to protect vehemently your neighborhood and your town, okay? No, it was to get more blacks on the job. Mm -hmm. It was to limit the number of applicants who, who were qualified by eliminating all of the people who lived in a, on a budding suburb. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happened starting with my class, which we had college-educated kids, New Haven is surrounded by about six colleges, University of New Haven, Yale, Southern, Quinnipiac. We had a number of people who made the police department in my 35 or so person class that weren't even from friggin' Connecticut but had lived in and around New Haven while they were going to college and became interested in being a cop. So now all of a sudden with my class in 1974, we started actually bringing in people into New Haven that weren't even born or lived here or whatever. Prior to that, a majority of the, those old that older group of guys that I was referring to were New Haven guys. They knew the city inside out. They knew people. They knew businesses. I mean, there's good and bad to that, but I find it mostly good. The old timers would tell me stories. Um, and when you first get on the job, after you go through all your training and everything, you, you ride for like, uh, I don't know if it was three weeks or whatever, but you ride with several different officers. Okay. And during that time when you're riding in a patrol car with him and, and kind of learning 
the street uh, there you're learning a lot of stories and then you drink with these guys all the time so there's a lot of camaraderie but this is the way it was back then a lot of walking beats and basically if you got assigned to a walking beat say on legion avenue lone legion avenue had a lot of bakeries and butcher shops back at those times well the bakers and the butchers would try to befriend the cops and give them keys to their businesses to their shops and invite the cop to sleep in the shop overnight because when you had when there were midnight walking beats the cop is not walking all night long, man. You always find in a place to hide, you find a hole, a hole, a place to hide. So these guys, because there were no sophisticated burglar alarms and this and that or whatever, they would give the cops keys and try to get the cops to stay in their house. You want to get warm, it is. You come in, you make yourself a sandwich, you know, you know, so at the end of those shifts in the morning, what the older guys would tell us is that you would go... You drove by the police department in New Haven. You would see these guys at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. The cops had worked all night long with their trunks open. And they would load it, be loading with their trucks, with their trunks of their cars with a chicken, with uh, six loaves of Italian bread, uh, you know, whatever. they. And they were given these things. They were like, the shopkeepers wanted it that way. And the cops took it. All the diners and everywhere we ate was free. <clears throat> when I first came on the job, the movie Serpico had just come out about two years before. It was part of it was part of what made me really want to become a cop. That that and a situation when I was 16 years old and our family got uh, we got robbed at gunpoint. There was a shootout. It was a home invasion. That's a whole other story, but. Uh, the Serpico movie got you thinking about, you know, graft and, uh, you know, taking money and this and that. So when I first got on the job and I started riding with other cops and I was a reserve officer before and we'd go in a diner and we would eat and the cop would get up to leave and I'd say, what about pay? And he goes, oh, you don't pay here. And I started thinking of the movie Serpico and I said, you don't pay here. He goes, no, the diners, they want us here. They, they want us here. They, they, if we could sit here all day long, they would give us steak sandwiches all day long. They would give us eggs and this and that. They want the uniform here. They don't want anybody coming in with a shotgun and robbing the cash register. They want the cop here. They want the police car up front. I said, oh, wow, oh, wow. That's like, that's like, like really, really cool. So, there, so it was like a give and take between the community and the shopkeepers the owners of businesses and the police officers. It wasn't really necessarily graft. I, now there was there was probably sh a lot of shit going on at the upper levels, like we had after hours clubs and this and that. There were payoffs. New Haven was bifurcated. It had two portions of organized crime because it was on the border between the Patriarca family in Rhode Island and the Gambino or Colombo family in New York. New Haven was kind of half and half. So certain things, numbers and gambling and, and uh, after hours clubs and stuff like that were run by two different uh, organized crime operations located many miles apart between Providence, Rhode Island and New York City. I didn't get involved in a lot of that, but you saw it occur because I was taken on raids. We were taken on raids or after hours clubs. We would all get in a van, 
and Nick Pastor, of all people, <laughs> that lineup at midnight. You walk in, you're midnight, you're at lineup, you, you get your stolen car reports, this and that. There's 20 of you. All of a sudden, they tell you, guys, well, we're doing something tonight. We can't tell you what it is, but uh, go down the elevator, Bob, go to the Sally Port. There's two vans. Get in the vans. Get in the van. So, you you know, you, you're with your buddies. You get in the van. You don't know where you're going. You get in the friggin' van. Stores close. Off they go. You get there. Bango. You're at an after-hours club. Then the B of I, Bureau of Identification, with all their cameras are there. You walk in. You raid the club. You take everything. A big box truck comes. The guys from our maintenance department and the police department, they come, they start loading the bar and the furniture. And and there's our camera, uh, uh, um, our Bureau of Identification guys taking photographs of everything. So there you are, you're being used as a pawn to raid an after-hours club. And directly across the street, as you raided this club, arrested people, threw people out and took all the possessions of the club, the speakers, system, the whole thing, and this and that. There's music blaring and blaring and blaring across the street and all these people walking in and out of an after-hours club right across the street, like right there, like right in front of you. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on over here? Ah, uh, they paid the money. They paid, they could stay. They paid, they stay. Well, who's running this? Well, this was a pastor operation. This was a pastor operation. So we closed the one that isn't paying, and this and that. Now, I, you know, like, you see all that. You're young. You're like, you're like 25 years old, you know, and you're seeing it all. It's a city in which you spend a lot of your time. Uh, I, when I was young, I grew up in New Haven for like six years. Then we moved to a contiguous town. But, I mean, New Haven was where I went, YMCA, played basketball, football, the whole thing, all in New Haven. So New Haven was where I grew up. But you don't know what's going on under the under the cover, so to speak, until you, you, know, you become a cop and you see all this stuff. But. Um, in answer to your question, the, what happened with the um, residency thing is after a while they started realizing that sometimes you would be better off by expanding your recruiting geography, mm. which would make natural sense because then you would have a better shot at getting better people. So it's almost like affirmative action uh, a situation. If you do that, then you limit it. Oh, everybody's got to have a certain skin color. But if you do it by uh, merit and you open the door, then you're getting the best of the best. Well, because politics was involved, they didn't necessarily want the best of the best. But here's what happened. Oftentimes, the people who had the political connections or their kids did to a particular board of commissioner, a police commission uh person or the mayor or whatever happened to live outside the city at a town or two away so now with all the political pressure there was how am i going to get my son on the police department in new haven if we live one town away not in that town so they changed the ordinance initially and they said contiguous towns so then they moved it a whole bigger circle then they made another bigger circle, and then they finally got rid of it. Right, so, so it goes from like contiguous towns to county it, it to state. All, yeah. Right, it was all a game based on politics 
of who for who. So in the beginning, when it was all residency, that was to get that was because the black, because in order for the dem, a Democratic mayor at that time to get elected, he had to make certain promises to the black population of New Haven. And one of the many promises that he would have to make them is this residency thing. And why? So we get more black cops. Period. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I listened to a conversation when I lived in Nashville. It was a local radio host named Dan Mandis, and he was interviewing a gentleman out of Georgia who had been a recruiter for like 40 years. He was retired, a recruiter of one of the biggest uh, police departments in the country. He wouldn't say where exactly. It was an hour-long interview. It was really good, and he was talking about how he used to be able to recruit like the best of the best, like you'd get the starting quarterback on the high school football team and you'd be able to recruit him and get him to be a cop. And then that guy was looked at like a hero and he would do community outreach and people really trust the police. And he was saying, and now you just end up basically with the dregs of society. People who have failed at all other things in life then become the cop. So you literally have the guy who was a criminal yesterday is now the cop because you can't get good people to want to be cops. Number one, he said with the pay not really going up over the years, you're not going to get someone for a base salary of $39,000 who's going to risk going out there getting shot, getting bricks thrown at him, or getting in a situation where he, you talked about uh, proactive policing. They don't even do reactive policing. If you get a call now, and, I, and I've talked to cops personally and friends of mine who have cousins that are cops, they said if they get a call at midnight on domestic violence, they don't even pick up their radio anymore. They won't go there because, God forbid, they have to wrestle some guy to the ground and it gets on video. Yeah. They know that the politicians yeah. aren't going to have their back and the next thing you know, they're going to get fired and or have their house burned down and it's going to be live on all the mainstream here, media networks. Here, here's the way I look at it. When I became a cop, it was... Um, it was... It was, it was like a, a calling. It was a profession. It was a duty. And the motivation for most of us, and I hung around with some pretty cool guys. I only knew one guy when I got out of the police department, uh, uh, Bill Piazic. I was the only one of 35 that I knew the first day of class. And over the next number of months you knew them all and then you finally had your group of like eight or ten of us that hung together weddings funerals uh, uh baptisms of kids at the whole thing just like you see in the movie it was like a very select club there were others that were others in say in my class and then other cops that you met from that had been on a year or two longer and, and this and that a number of my friends over time had become chiefs of police of different police departments as and as when they retired i mean i hung around with a lot of pretty Pretty good guys that, that stayed in the profession and, like I say, became somewhat politically astute and became chiefs in other towns. But my motivation and most of the guys I was with were we wanted action and we wanted to help people who needed to be helped, whether it be a little old couple from the Bronx who was on Whaley Avenue in New Haven and couldn't find the highway at 2 o'clock in the morning because they went to a play at Yale. And you look at them and you go, wow, this is like my grandmother, grandfather, my uncle. I'm not going to give you directions, Mr. and Mrs. whatever your name is. I'm going to bleed you. 
three miles through the city, four different turns with my light on, and I'm going to bring you to the highway. And that makes you feel like so great. And the other half of the job was to catch the friggin' scumbags that were brutalizing people and hurting people and putting the bad people away. Because we were the biggest, the baddest, and the strongest. We were the youngest. We were the smartest. And we almost knew the streets as well as the bad guys. Some of the bad guys knew the streets better than us, the backyards and this and that. But those, those, are, the, those are the reasons most of us became cops, not for any other reason. Now, in my class of 35, there was two in particular, two, maybe three, who their initial motivation was politics from the very beginning, from day one. We, I didn't know them, but I got to know them. We all got to know them pretty. We, we, we had them tagged pretty well. Their whole thing was they knew the chief and they knew the politicians. And lo and behold, they became sergeants, lieutenants, and got the best jobs in the police department right away. Another, an awakening, an awakening of what humanity is all about. There's always going to be certain people like that. But Nowadays, so that was my motivation and most cops' motivation, in my opinion, back in the 70s, maybe 80s, maybe 90s, whatever. What's happened now, a little prior to George Floyd, but George Floyd, you know, precisely, changed the whole world. No proactive policing anymore, almost whatsoever. You, the whole object is to finish your shift safely and get paid without going near a human being. Imagine that, you're a police officer. The less um, contact you have with a human being, from giving directions to giving a parking ticket to, God forbid, having to arrest somebody, to chasing somebody, to, you know, I mean, all those things can only get you in trouble now. Everyone's got a camera everyone's got um, a video. The police officers are now walking cameras with their friggin' sad, how sad it is walking around with cameras taped to your friggin' chest, audio and video, your whole friggin' life. Uh, you could stop a crime back in the old days. Get, you, you could save two kids from getting arrested back in the old days by walking up to them on the corner and saying, get the fuck off the corner, I'm gonna split your fucking head open, your mother's gonna know about it, and I know your father is gonna kick your ass after they stitch you up, and that kid goes home and that's the end. You can't say that anymore. You have to wait till the kid commits a crime, and even then your response time is so low, you hope that he's not there when he's climbing out the window because you get there so slow. But you can't say those things or do those things anymore. Why? Well, it's offensive, but two, you have a friggin' camera on you. I was like, I, I, now, the part that gets me is the common sense. Police, officer, police officers are just people, but most of the ones that I learned to meet and found out about them, what they were like when they were younger, because remember, I said I only knew one of them, and I know what he was like. The guys who were the best cops, the, if I had to grade them, were the ones who were the biggest scooches and probably got in the most trouble as they grew up. 
Mm. They got in the most trouble with the police. They got in the most trouble with their parents. They got in the most trouble with their friends. But they turned out to be the best cops in the world. Why? Because they know how a bad guy thinks, and they became a good guy. And they became good at catching bad guys. And they became good at convincing bad guys to become good guys. And those were the best ones. Nowadays, any buddy who cries out for a police department first of all they can't recruit they can't even get i said there was 35 of my class and 600 applicants i don't think they can get 30 applicants anymore in a, in a big police department because the only person that you're going to want that's going to want to do this job now is someone who's not going to want to chase bad guys and get himself in trouble so what is he, why does he want to become a cop? Because he likes uniforms and he wants to walk around with a badge when he's off duty and tell people, I'm cool, I'm a cop. Okay, because any cop who's a cop knows that he's got to get in confrontations to help people and do things, and then you're going to get sued and lose your job, and your city isn't going to back you up. So why would you want to become a cop? So those guys are all going, they're leaving their police departments in urban cities, and they're going to places like Long Island, New York, and, and, uh, and other, uh, shall we say, um, jurisdictions in various states that accept and support their police officers. But there's only so many that can go. So, so many of them have quit. The last numbers I saw, which was about three months ago for New York City, there were 1,700 retirees uh, uh, leaving. Um, this was probably July or August, okay? So a little over half a year. And of those 16 or 1,700 that were leaving, there was like, 700 of them didn't even have vested pensions. They were just leaving to leave, to no longer be yeah. a cop. In a 35,000-man police department that was is known to be supposedly the best on the planet, and you're going to leave that? Yeah, well, that, well, that, some well, idea who's going to want to join it. Well, th well, that's what recruit. That's what that recruiter I heard talking about. He said that most of the guys that are good at it and want to do it as a profession, right? They end up going out and being a private contractor or, or running a security company where they can make three times the amount of money with less stress. The the ones who become cops now are complete and total losers, right. Who want the power, like you said, to be able right. to flash their badge, right. and or they're a psychopath that's just looking to go out and shoot somebody, yeah, because there's no other reason that you'd want to be or they're a political hack and a the, bureaucrat a friend of a friend and right, that's about and, it right and they've already been promised that we can make you a lieutenant within uh you know eight months because we're short men it's etc cetera, etc cetera. we're short of staff so we can elevate you because your father is the uh you know the mayor's driver or something like that yes that's exactly what's going on and and and, and think about this I, I look at it this way with police officers think of it with firemen think think of this you have a fire department. Um, I'll just say one thing in the very beginning. We, you talked about Rudy's, and uh, so I never knew anything about firemen, okay? And I thought some firemen were wussies and cops were big, brave guys, okay? So at, at Rudy's was a place for me to start learning about firemen uh, because firemen and, and, and uh, police officers shared the, the same bar, and uh, so we got to know each other. But... And so there was always this kind of camaraderie going back and forth. But until I became a cop and did crowd control 
for my very first big fire, did I gain the unbelievable utmost respect I ever had for a public servant, and I mean servant. It was a nighttime fire at a grocery store on Congress Avenue, my beat, the black section of New Haven, the ghetto, as some people would call it. Heroin was big at the time and this and that. And all these Section 8 uh, welfare people would shop at this one grocery store uh, in their neighborhood because they could walk there, you know, and um, it was their place. And lo and behold, a big giant fire. I don't know, 9, 10 o'clock at night in the summer, hot and humid, and I'm doing crowd control along with, you know, maybe six, seven, eight, ten other police cars and watching these firemen. They're in a complete total darkness, two stories up, walking around on a burning roof, not knowing where the frig they're going and when the roof is going to collapse. Every once in a while, one of them will come down off a ladder, hardly able to breathe, covered in friggin' soot. Sweat pouring off their face, sitting on a friggin' pavement by your feet because you're holding a crowd back and everything. So these guys are like, you're like really working shoulder to shoulder with them, but you're breathing, you're cool, your uniform is clean. These guys are like working like coal miners, like animals. I said, I, I'm saying to myself, holy shit, you guys signed up to do this kind of work like all the time. That's what turned them on. That that was their thing. So. Once I saw that, and then I'd seen many others, and we had a couple of deaths where firemen fell through roofs and died. Uh, I said to myself, man, you guys are unbelievable. So they live together in a firehouse. Police officers don't. They cook together. They bathe and shower together. And all of them almost all have a second job. They're either contractors, plumbers, uh, they do plowing. They all have a, another job because the way their shift works, they have like three or four days off at a time. So they do, they, they're, they're really industrious, uh, cool people. But the, the thing is, they, they uh, when they have their exams, their exams for supervisory positions the way that their trucks and engine companies work is that the boss has got to know a shit how to fight a fire not necessarily how to climb a ladder and this and that which is part of it but what chemical at what direction at what wind speed from what angle at what time what heat now when they started lowering the standards and playing this game in New Haven with affirmative action because there were not enough black, um, enough blacks winning supervisory positions in these firehouses, and they kept lowering and lowering and lowering the standard, who who would want a firefighter? Your house is on fire, your building, your business, your whole life savings, uh, running a truck, um, commanding two or three or four or five or six other fires to save property and lives who doesn't have a friggin' clue what chemical, what fire, what, what gauge of hose, what this and that, all because he's black or because he's Puerto Rican or because he's Jewish. Who, 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 would, want, who would want that? Yet the nonsensical bureaucracy and political crap that goes on in these quote-unquote public service jobs and promotions is so criminally 
wrong and insane and, and dangerous that people like this are promoted because that's the game they play, and yet they don't consider the lives that are going to be lost, including firemen's lives, including other brother firemen because you have a boss. The boss I had, Listro, you know, as far as I was concerned, I told him to go fuck himself and I turned him in. But imagine being a fireman at a fire and having a wrong boss there. And the fire's blazing and you're up on a roof. Yet they do this all the time. It's like, this is the world that we live in um, with incompetent, corrupt uh, people. And once you introduce uh, affirmative action and all this other nonsense that's going on today with the 10 different versions of a human being, you know, I, I mean, we're ruining ourselves as a, as a society. Well, right? that's all done. There's no, That's just going to keep progressing and progressing because it's all part of the plan. That comes out of the world powers. But no, so what What ended up happening with the um, when you when you went to battle with the City of New Haven in federal court. Did you end up beating City Hall, or yeah. do you consider it a loss? Yeah. No, no, no. It, it, it turned out that um, Judge Ellen Burns uh, from the uh, federal court in uh, New Haven ruled in summary judgment. That means without not, not having to try the case, with her reading all of the briefs and then having the city have to ultimately acknowledge that each and every one of my tape, recorders, uh, tape recordings was accurate, that... It was a prima facie proof of the fact that the city of New Haven uh, informally, I mean, uh, improperly and unconstitutionally discharged me and terminated me, and therefore they would have to pay me money, back pay, and uh, offer uh, me uh, my job back. But at that time, uh, I had already been um, a private investigator for about five years. I had built up, built up, a clientele and kind of really liked the job. And I said, you know, I already knew winning was to prove that I was right and to get some money back. Okay, so I did that. Going back would, would now that I, knowing how the system works, would, I would have voluntarily put myself in a situation where I was re-entering a place where you knew that they were going to want to get me again anyway. I was a little too smart for that. Yeah. So it, it, it was, to a certain extent, a blessing in my, you know, life experience to have encountered that love. Yeah, but 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 the, but the other good thing is, coincidentally, what I do, and and what I did, uh, especially right after. Uh, I left the police department was I knew every cop on the job. I knew 435 cops on the job in New Haven and probably another two or 300 in surrounding towns from all the different meetings and other people that I knew. So I worked as a private investigator for a long, long time, knowing almost every single um, uh, police officer. And it helped me a real lot because in the beginning I did a lot of um, criminal stuff of which I don't do uh, any now. And I did a lot of divorce uh, divorces back in those days um, following someone and catching them doing bad and naughty and disgusting things while they were married had a value to it in a, in a, in a family court. Today it's almost irrelevant. 
um, society has changed. But knowing police officers, where to go, how to go, how I can get in and out of places where you don't really normal person doesn't belong and even with some of the criminal cases um uh you know defending some of these criminal people but being able to talk to the cops that helped a lot so that was like a great you know entryway into my career into what i do well you were talking about divorces there and since uh you were just hanging out with your ex-wife my mother there's a crazy story about when you guys, where the heck did you go to? Was it Maine or New Hampshire when uh, you guys posed as undercover uh, did, documentarians? Yeah, we did a bunch of, yeah, we did. I, you know, the coolest part was when I met, when I met your mother, I was a cop and she was a manager of a movie theater in New Haven and she was going to college to get her degree in video. So those hearings that I referred to with me getting fired and this and that, your mom brought her whole crew in and videotaped it. And back in those days, video wasn't like it was today. Video was tw reels, reels, round circular reels with 20 minutes worth of friggin' tape on them. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was a big thing. So... Having gotten to know your mom and knowing what she did and this and that, there were certain jobs in which I could work with her uh, after we got married. And one of the lawyers I worked for in particular, Max Brunswick, what a crazy guy, poor man is dead. But he would get me these assignments that would involve almost like Mission Impossible, one of which he sent me to California for uh, 10 days to uh, rescue a four-year-old girl out of a trailer park. Now, that's a whole story in itself. But one of the ones with your mom was um, a situation where the what we were trying to accomplish was the client was, Max's client was a man. He had five children with this woman they got divorced she moved up to i think it was new hampshire um she had and, and max is the one who ran that he had max like divorced yeah men's divorced society men's association yeah, right. divorced men's association he started that yes and he used to represent a lot of men and back at that time what was called joint custody in child in, in divorce cases was almost unheard of. Women would always get the, and Max thought that that was wrong. And Max started a whole association and represented many, many men, and many of them he got joint custody of, which was almost unheard of in a in a liberal state like Connecticut, you know. But so this particular one was one of those types of cases, and uh, the assignment was that this woman left Connecticut with the with the five kids no no wait 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 no this woman had like three kids and one of which was a baby okay the five kids is another one okay this this one she, she had like three kids one of them was a baby and uh, she moved up and she uh, lived like on a farm and she called herself like an earth mom earth mom okay so she was into like uh you know farm grown stuff organic you know all this stuff and everything and our guy, the client, he was learning thing, and 
and she was going to homeschool. Now, mind you, homeschooling now is cool. Everybody wants to do it. But back in those days, homeschooling was like a super no-no. Like, okay, so it was almost like a, almost against the law. Well, our guy, the dad, he found out that she was going to be homeschooling his children against the judge's court ruling when he allowed her to go there that the kids would have to enroll in school. So our assignment, my assignment from Max, was to see if I could infiltrate her, interview her, and have her acknowledge that she's not sending the kids to school because you don't get a lot of information from the schools across the state back then. And... Um, and uh, and and also that they were living in a, in a dangerous environment because he had heard that their house, this farmhouse he lived in, almost burned down. They said, "Holy Christ! How the frig are we going to do that?" You know, all of these assignments were like really cool. So it turned out that that particular winter was going to be like a, a predicted to be extremely cold, wintry winter with a lot of snow, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, came up with this pretext that I was going to go up there as a video documentarian with your mother, and we were going to do a video. Uh, we were going to do um, a report on how people are preparing for the coldest winter in New England. And that would allow us to start talking to people and eventually, hopefully, working our way into this lady's home. Yeah. Well, we learned from the dad that the center of town, this was a small rural town, the center of town was this general store, heart, you know, old wooden plank floors, and they sold everything from shovels to food to everything. And that's where anybody and everyone in the community would go. And the lady who ran it, what he gave us her name and what kind of person she was she was like an earth mom too like a hippie lady and all uh. that stuff so we have all this information so i had business cards printed up and we used your aunt elaine's uh it was either it was a, a, a elaine or beth's phone number they were all in on the plan that there, that was going to be our studio location we were going to say that we were from new york so if anyone got our business cards and they called and asked for ingrid or lou that they, that they would have the bullshit story and the first place that we were going to go when we went up there was we were going to go to the mayor's office to the mayor's office and introduce ourselves okay so there was a small town so he was like the first selectman and the mayor or whatever sure enough it's a wintry weekend and mom and i go up there she rents this camera equipment it looks like something like cbs friggin news the cameras are like this big on the back seat of the friggin car she's got like a box with 15 reels of this tape and everything i mean we're like real professionals we have the business cars and everything so we have our hotel room booked and we go to the um we go to the town hall and it's a friday and it's just about closing. It's like three o'clock. It's getting dark. It's dark at three o'clock, like you know, um, in, in the winter time or whatever. And lo and behold, we happen to catch the friggin' guy that's 
first selectman and he's in his office and uh you know because it's a small town there's like one secretary one office uh, but we go in we introduce ourselves we give them the bullshit story what we're doing oh uh, we're uh, and, and and uh and uh you know we're doing a documentary on the coldest winter in new england and how different towns are preparing and and this and that and all that stuff could you give us the names of a few people that we can talk to he says oh you definitely got to go to the general store so now we got our in for the general store oh you definitely got to go to talk to the uh, principal over at the high school on uh, this and that. So we leave him immediately. We go over to the principal. Okay, then we get the first electman's business card. And then we go to the high school. Now it's like 4 o'clock. Sure as shit, the principal's there in the office. We go and give him the bullshit. Oh, the the, the, the uh, mayor just sent us over here to see you. What are you? Oh, we're going to be buying 10,000 gallons of oil. You know, and uh, we're getting ready. Uh, we have backup uh, heat and all this shit. Okay, so, so now we're all set. So now we go back, we go, wow, wow, wow. So we have a couple of drinks and this and that. We go to bed, we get up the next morning, Saturday morning, it's friggin' snowing, light snow coming down. We take all the equipment, the tripod and the cameras and everything. We go to the general store, we walk in the general store. Sure enough, there's people in there, they're buying salt, they're buying their shovels and you know all this stuff. We walk up to the lady, we go, geez, and we give her our whole spiel, we give her our card, we tell them we talk to the mayor, we talk to the principal. Do you mind if we set up our cameras in the store and talk to people as they come in she goes oh no that would be great so we play that game for about ingrid's behind the camera i'm the guy like you with the friggin microphone <laughs> i'm walking up to people and i'm uh, giving them this bullshit what are you going to do the winter and they're all excited oh there's a big camera crew up here and this and that you know these are the kind of like hillbilly people nice people but i mean it's like wow this is a big deal nobody ever did this before so we get bored we well we we had to set this up. So we do it for about an hour, interview about wasting tape of about maybe three or four people. So we take a break, and this was the key. This was the whole thing. The whole case was to get this lady behind the counter that owned the store to introduce us to this woman who lived out, in the, out on a farm three miles, four miles out of town. But we would need an introduction. So I go up to the lady and go, wow, this is very interesting and this and that. We'd really like to, like, um, you know, we got a little of this. We got a little of that. We got the uh, town manager, the you know, the uh, mayor. We got the principal. How about, like, is there anybody, like, a, like on the outskirts of town, like a farm, or like maybe a single woman or somebody that's probably got a lot of pressure you know, like maybe if we got a big storm, she goes, you know, there is. I said, oh, really? She goes, yeah, whatever this lady's name was. She goes, Joan so-and-so. She's got like three kids. Matter of fact, she almost had a, they had a fire there a while ago. And uh, she's, I said, oh, where does she live? He tells him that. She said the address. We knew it was confirmed. So he said, um, oh, really? Do you think that she would talk to us if we went out there? He goes, let me give her a call. Phone rings three times. He says, Joan, yeah, I got a camera crew here. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hangs up. He says, oh, they're doing a, a barn raising at her house right now. She has a bunch of men over there, but you could go up. Now it's snowing pretty good. Mom and I go over there. Sure as shit. There's a lady out there. She's got one a little baby in a papoose, like like one of them things wrapped around her body, you know. Yeah. And then the two boys are running around. There's about six guys there, pickup trucks, and they're putting in a new roof on the barn. 
Snow's coming down. We get the bullshit with her. We go, this goes on for like three hours. By now it's like maybe three in the afternoon, two, three in the afternoon. She says, do you want to come? Do you want to stay for dinner? You're such nice people. Ah, we got to go. We have a lot of things to do. Come, stay for dinner. Your mother's looking at me. She's going like this. She's rolling her eyes, your mother. She's rolling her eyes. She's going, holy shit, I can't believe this. Well, next thing you know, we're in the house. We got the camera. We're eating dinner with her. She's got the fireplace lit. She's milking her baby, okay? Your mother's got the tape rolling, and we start talking, and she starts telling us all this stuff. She's divorced. And I said, oh, oh, I said, oh do you drink wine? So I go into town. I get these two big bottles of wine So because we figured the more she's drinking the more she's talking we go for about maybe two three hours she tells us the whole story how the house almost burned down she didn't have a fire extinguisher how she says frig the judge frig that judge in connecticut i'm homeschooling my kids i'm not sending them to school all this stuff like she told we get in the car by this time now there's about a foot of snow on the ground it's 11 o'clock. Your mom and I have helped this lady drink two big bottles of friggin' wine. Okay, so, you know, we got a little bit of wine in us. We got to drive to a hotel a few miles away, and your mother starts punching me. <laughs> crying. I said, we're in the driveway. In this lady's driveway, this farm, we have this long dirt driveway. We had to get out of the place. I said, what are you doing? She goes, how could you do that? How could you do that? I said, do what? <laughs> I said, do what? Do what? He said, how can you get her in trouble like that? I said, she told us everything that just happened. You know, she told us like her whole life story. I said, she's not supposed to be doing this. She's lying to the court. I said, we're working for the man. It's the truth. We're not, it's not like we're setting her up or anything. She said it openly. I said, and not only that, Ingrid, it was you that got her to talk. I said, you were the one that was asking her all the questions. He goes, I know, I know, but I didn't, I know, but I didn't. I said, get in the friggin' car, we're out of here. <laughs> and then I was like, well, then what was it? A couple years later, you walked into the courtroom during the trial and she saw you? Oh, no, that's a different one. Oh, that's it. That's the one where your uh, great uncle Elliot was banging the lady we were watching. <laughs> oh, that was the one where you guys pretended. Oh, that was another Max Brunswick. That's where, where the, I was a yeah, scuba diver. Where the I car broke down. And yeah, you the had car broke scuba. down with all my scuba equipment. That was in Voluntown, Connecticut. Oh, that was a good one. That's the lady who had five boys, and she let them drink beer, and you know the young ones in the woods across the street at a keg party. And, oh, we nailed her big time. Me and Elliot. We brought her steaks and uh, actually Heineken beer. We bought a case of Heineken beer yes. and steaks. Now, that's not we're an ad for the show. From, we're the big boys from New Haven going all the way up to Voluntown. Scuba divers. Ah, uh, you got a date for my friend if I come up next week? Yeah. Meanwhile, I, Elliot's banging her and... and, uh, and um, so, so, that, so that whole case goes, and we learn all this from her. Plus, she had a little side business, which she wasn't declaring on her, on her, um, on her financial affidavit. She's selling like beads and trinkets and stuff that she made, like jewelry in the house. So we got, we saw all that. We did that. We see her letting her son come running back across the street. They lived in an area where it's all woods, all woods. This guy, the dad on this one, he worked at the nuclear plant. He was a pretty cool guy. He worked at the nuclear plant. His wife had the five, five boys. He didn't have physical custody, but he heard that they were all screwing around and the wife was screwing around. And um, so the first time I met her, I said, how am I ever going to meet her? 
And you got to remember, we didn't have Google Maps then or this or that or whatever. The guy describes to me, he says, oh, my house, it's up on a hill. There's nobody around it. There's a lake a mile away. There's all woods and this and that. I said, how the frig am I going to get into this friggin' house? Well, back in those days, we didn't have cell phones either. So if your car broke down, you'd knock on a door and ask people to use the phone. So sure shit, I, I load my car up with my scuba gear. Uh, this is the first time I went up there. I'm alone. And uh, lo and behold, I stopped my car, like, right near her house. I have to walk all the way up her driveway. I knock on the door. It's me out of my car. Blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, and she says, oh, really? She says, uh, I know a little about, about cars or something. She walks down. So I, let, I, wa I want her to see the scuba gear because my story is I'm coming up here because we're going to dive in the lake, me and my friends, in, the, in this big lake in Valentown. So um, she says... Um, so anyway, I get to know her, and I tell her that, um, you know, uh, that I dive on a regular basis, and I heard that this was a pretty good, good place. So I said, you know, I might be coming back up here next weekend. I said, uh, um, with a couple of, of, uh, of my buddies, I said, uh, you were so nice. I said, I'd like to treat you um, uh, uh, to, uh, if I come up with some steaks and, and everything. I said, could we cook them here at your house? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I already knew a little bit about her personality because of what her husband said. So lo and behold, we go up there. She's got a friend there. I got uh, Elliot with me. Uh, we do the steaks and the beer and all that shit. And then we go out to this friggin' nightclub place or whatever. I don't know where the hell it was, Norwich maybe. And uh, Elliot ends up with her. And I end up with the other one, but I don't do anything with her. And uh, long, long story short, now I've gained a lot of information about her and her kids. While I was there, I see her son, the 15-year-old one. He comes running across the street while I'm there the second time. He says, Ma, Ma, I need like $2. What do you need $2? Oh, Mr. So-and-so, he's got the keg in the woods. There's like 20 of us. We all have to pitch in $2. She gives him $2. He goes in the woods. Bang, the kid's drinking. Okay, that's a, that's violation number one, you know, for a divorce court. So about, I don't know, a year goes by. The case isn't settled. Obviously, Max sandbags everybody, never tells them what went on. Max brings me and Elliot up to the courthouse in New London or Norwich. I forget which one it was, but it's a big old courthouse. It looks like something from the cowboy days, you know? You know, old wooden stairs and all that. Anyway, he, Max puts me and, and, um, and Elliot in, uh, in, a in a little luncheonette about a half a block away, and we're sitting there and sitting there and sitting there waiting for max to call us so we don't know what's going on in the courthouse so finally after like two or three hours we were smoking cigarettes back then uh max comes and gets us and he says come on it's time to testify mm -hmm. I said well what happened he goes oh i already had her understand she says she never has any uh, dates with any men. And she never gives her slits or son drink <laughs> that she doesn't have another business she doesn't sell anything um so 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 we walk back to the courthouse and then max puts us in the hallway and then he goes in he sits down the judge bangs the gavel recess is over and uh and um so i 
well, we don't know what's going on inside the courtroom, but obviously it's, uh, the judge must have said, uh, Mr. Brunswick, you know, your your next uh, witness, please. And the door opens up and frickin' Elliot walks down the friggin' uh, uh, <laughs> walks down the aisle. She looks over her shoulder. Then I come in because now I'm going to sit in the back. She sees us both. She, she, she like, almost, like, faints, like, f- almost, like, falls over, like, where do I know these guys from? Where do I know these guys from? She's thinking in her mind. She puts her hand on her on her um, lawyer's shoulder, and the lawyer calls for a recess, <laughs> and they settle the case. <laughs> now, let me ask you this, because the last, like, 15 years, you've done a lot of medical malpractice work with a number of, oh, big billboard firm, uh, Carter Mario, and then, you know, Jerry McHenry and all the different groups he's had over the years, some big $10, $20 million cases. A lot of people have been talking about this in the community around my show and Mike Moore's show, the Thomas Paine podcast, and then uh, The Quash, which is a show by Legal Man. He's been a lawyer for 40 years. He talks a lot about this stuff. And uh, it comes up now that sort of the smoke is cleared, and people realized that maybe they went out and got the vaccine because their employer said they had to, but then it turns out that they couldn't force them to, but they went and did it, and when they went to the pharmacy, they got informed consent and they did it. So everybody's talking about this and whether or not there's going to be lawsuits or could be lawsuits. Legal man, who's actually quite interesting, he's like Norm Pattis, it's a lawyer I've talked about uh-huh. from Connecticut who came from the did. left, who turned out to be a FD, uh, FBI type of guy. Legal man comes from the right uh, as a constitutional conservative but now he's basically where norm is screw the whole system type of person uh legal man has said on the show people are wasting their time you're never going to sue your employer you're never going to be able to get any of this done because at the end of the day you went and got the shot in your arm that's how the whole system was designed the vaccine companies have immunity and have you heard anything from any of the lawyers you work for are people bringing any of these cases or asking lawyers about it because legal man says first off you're never going to prove if you have cancer or you had a stroke or you had a heart attack you're never going to prove that that was caused by moderna or johnson and johnson or pfizer because the doctor who you need to say that that's what caused it is the same doctor that advised you to go get the shot so none of this is actually going to occur have you heard anybody talking about it from a legal perspective um um, personally no but my belief is, first of all, for lawyers and law firms to take on medical malpractice cases, and this is if we would call it a medical malpractice, but this would be more like a labor case. It would be uh, seemingly a case against your employer who compelled you to do something as opposed to a medical malpractice case where you're suing a, a pharmacy or a doctor for prescribing or misprescribing prescribing something but medical malpractice cases cost a fortune for a personal injury lawyer to gamble with uh and he's going up against monstrous amount of financial um um power uh, whether it be from the insurance company that represents the doctor's group, the hospital, the pharmaceutical uh, company, or whatever. So they usually bleed that personal injury lawyer dry by dragging things on for five, six, seven years of poor personal injury lawyers out a half a million, two million, three million dollars in expenses already. Well, 
what are you going to get? You know, what are the damages? So if the damages aren't so great that they offset all of the expenses with the lawyer eventually gets back, but does not get back if he loses. So from what I understand, all of the um, uh, immunities and uh, waivers and everything else that were granted, all of the individual uh, companies, doctors, pharmacies that have prescribed, developed, and uh, and uh, uh, solicited and friggin' passed out this shit, uh, they supposedly have immunity. And I don't know of any case, though there may be, that are... are going to try to challenge that the better challenge would be the one that you just mentioned whether or not my employer can be held for and part of as we heard with the recent midterms and some of the promises that were being made uh and even things like with Trump at 2024, if he ran, and I don't know how much Zeldin was saying about it, but one of the first things they wanted to do was create legislation that would immediately um, reinstate those government workers, you know, um, police, fire, um, mm. SEAL team members, military, along with back pay. So that could be something that could remedy guys who've lost their job. But all the damage that was done for a guy who lost his job like a year and a half ago, by now he might have lost his house. He might have lost his wife because she was pissed at him. He might have lost, you know, his kid's opportunity to go to college. I don't know how you reimburse for all that. But that one and you, seemed, and you'd have that to, seemed well, winnable, well, winnable, though. That one seemed yeah, winnable. But at the same time, you'd have to prove all that chain of events occurred from that one event. Oh, yeah. and they, okay. You became an alcoholic 18 months later well, because your wife left you. Lawyer, believe yeah. me, lawyers are good at that. I, I've yeah. seen those those trails are linked together quite well. What I'm saying is, is there a cause of action against an employer who is not mandated or compelled by the government? Because then maybe that immunity, that waiver would would link up to uh, to, to all of the other immunities that were granted in the, in the beginning. But um, for independently saying, in order for you to work here, you have to have gotten X number of shots. And the guy says, no, I'm not doing that. For whatever reason, religious, medical, physical, whatever. And now, that, and that's, in my mind, this is part of the reason why none of these agencies, doctors, or institutions, or even the new mayor you know, of New York are willing to acknowledge that maybe we shouldn't have done that. They all know that once they open their mouth and say, well, maybe we shouldn't have mandated firefighters right. and 9-11 and responders uh, during COVID who are our heroes and our Walmart ladies that stood there every day and checked out people who had to buy food to bring it home. Why... And that now got fired once we made mandated. Why Walmart and, and and the government agencies that fired these people? Why they shouldn't be sued? To me, that seems like a winnable. That eventually, I, I believe that those cases once those start to be won, 
they're going to be appealed all the way up to the top because it opens the door to almost every country's, I mean, every state, every town, every jurisdiction that did something this cruel and stupid. But uh, those are winnable, I think. Well, that's uh, like, a, like a good friend of the I'm show. Not a lawyer, but. Well, a good friend of the show said, you know, if, if they were working and it happened to them, uh, you know, they'd be, they'd be filing a suit, you know, against the girl in HR that enforced it, trying to sue everyone individually yeah. inside the company that followed orders. Yeah. Now, the lawyer... Uh, yeah, you sue them yeah. because you want to work up. You 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 want to be able to depose them. You want to be able to get them to say, "Well, John, you know, the assistant manager told me the assistant the manager told me they're all going to be covered basically by the ins same insurance company because they're working for the same uh, business." But what I'm saying is, do I think that those are winnable? Well, if there wasn't a statewide mandate or a friggin' law that was passed constitutionally and the legislation of that state or federally but the cdc doesn't have any legislative power uh, i don't see how it isn't anything other than a personal choice by the management of a particular company to say in order to come in this door tomorrow and work a cash register you got to get a shot well who the fuck are you to tell me that i have to get a shot right. where did they, where did that power how did it come to you well, this is just a decision we made to save our people. Oh, okay. Well, here we are, three years later. Now the court's going to make a decision about you. That's that's where I think that's where I think there's vulnerability with regards to the uh, in, institution of that policy individually at different businesses and government agencies. Um, but I think the pharmacies, the doctors, I think they're home free. Yeah, Sad. I think that anyone in the chain of command yeah. that actually sold the drug. But let me yeah. ask you, and plus, you know, I mean, this was something I learned in our birth class. Our, our, the lady who taught that class was will, really well-versed in informed consent. You know, that she was training us what would happen once you started to deal with the hospital, which I'm glad we took the course because she was really well-educated uh, in that department. But I had talked to her off the record, separate from our birth class, about informed consent on the vaccines. And she said, well, this is the thing. Like at the hospital, they'll send in a sales guy who fast talks. You don't realize you just consented to what he was informing you about because he made it all cool and hip and well, he comes he in like Patch Adams with a clown nose on right. and he's telling you, oh, we're going to stick the bomb, but you're going to bomb. And you go, oh, okay. Next thing you know, they jab it into your IV. You don't even know you just consented to the thing. Right. And so it's a similar case uh, with this. Like she said, you know, really, once you go down to CVS or you get in the line at Goodwill, drive through and let them stick a needle in your arm, you consented to it. If they didn't inform you properly, that's because you didn't ask to read all the fine print once you let him actually stick you with something you consented to it because no one dragged you down to the cvs forced you to roll up your arm yeah and let them stick you with it well there's different levels or degrees of informed consent you know to a certain extent like if i were a lawyer and i were exploring the um the chronology of my client being quote unquote um, informed mm. and ultimately consenting. There's probably 10 variables that that lawyer could utilize to question the informed consent or the individual who claims on such and such a day, sitting on such and such a bed uh, at ho in hospital room 234, I told him this, this, and this. And the, you know, well, guess what? 
asswipe. My client doesn't speak English, you stupid fuck. I mean, that's number yeah. one. Like, right off the bat. I mean, just think about informed consent. So that guy goes to his old, blah, 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 and the poor guy sitting in the bed shakes his head, and the next thing you know, he's got a needle. Well, fuck your informed consent. You're, you're, off, you're gone right now. We just proved that you could not have ever informed mm. this guy, nor could he have consented. That's just like one. That's like the, like the first step. Mm. Now start with, well, he used what words? What's the word you use? A five-syllable word? You know that my client got as far as second grade, mm. and he's dyslexic. dyslexic. Yeah. So, like, there's a lot of ways to kind of... Now, let me that. just ask you, because they, they, what they were talking about, some of the people in the show, was, you, and you just mentioned, um, if you take the chain of command inside of a particular business, so let's say people work for Wegman's Grocery Store, and so they, the HR director says, hey, everybody's got to get vaccinated. And then, you you know, so let's say people were going to sue the HR director, they're going to sue the shift manager. You said they're all represented by the same insurance company because they all work for the same employer. Now, just theoretically... Could someone be suing these people as individuals as well, or would the court just throw that and say you have to sue you have to sue them through their positions in the company because they were acting on behalf of the uh, company? I, I think, and I've seen um, in complaints, and oftentimes ask the lawyer, "Why do you do it this way?" But if you start naming people individually, you can release them individually as you tick through your depositions, this, that, or whatever. So oftentimes what a lawyer may do is like a shotgun approach, and you don't necessarily know the names of all the employers, employees, so sometimes you have to add them or amend your complaint as you have more discovery. So you find out from the HR director, director that it was Joni Johnson, who's the assistant HR director, and then you get that name and that name. So sometimes you add and sometimes you subtract. But to go after each one of them individually, similar to what's going on with police departments right now, with this elimination of the uh, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, of the of the immunity, where where all of a sudden police officers could be on the hook themselves. I see. It has sometimes a very good strategy to name individually these people. Whether or not it compels them to go out and have to get a lawyer, I doubt it because chances are the company's going to ultimately be on the hook. But if there's, if you name five people mm. and Two of them have completely opposing views. Like Johnny says Joan did it, and Joan says Johnny did it. Mm. Those two friggin' people might have to each get their own lawyer because how do you get one lawyer to represent the two people that are pointing the finger at each other or who's the one that gave the memo to the employees to get the shot? Mm -hmm. So y you could cause a lot of hardship and a lot of problems with the quote-unquote defendants. Right. In a situation where you start naming people individually, which is pretty... I think a pretty cool move. I, I, different jurisdictions. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so you're asking kind of the wrong guy. I'm just telling you, I have seen individuals named oftentimes in different lawsuits. Well, and then the other thing is, I, I think, like we said, let, let's take an individual person. And in this particular scenario, we're going to take a guy that works for Wegmans. Not someone who was fired, let's say, because he did not get vaccinated, but someone who was vaccinated because he didn't want to lose his job right now 
because this comes up in conversation on different shows, let's take that guy and let's pretend, as far as he knows, nothing has happened to him. So there's no damages, there's no injury, right? So first off, unless that guy is going to represent himself or he's going to come up with a ton of money, there's not really going to be an attorney who's going to lay out yeah, or agree to lay out $100,000, $500,000 to take a case when there's no damages. Right. The second part is, let's say that guy did three months later, have a stroke. If that lawyer can't figure out the fastest way to Correct. get from A to Z, which is to get a doctor, Correct. a reputable doctor on the record, to say the stroke definitively Correct. caused was caused by the Correct. vaccine, you're not going to get a lawyer to and, gamble. And, 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 and a doctor who would definitively say that, who would then have to go up against three other doctors who would de de definitively deny it. In other words, an expert, a, a case where expert versus expert. So even then, with having to shop around for a doctor who's got the balls and the knowledge and the background and, and the credentials to testify in one way, is also going to be refuted by two or three or four or even one, just one from the insurance company going in the other direction. So even then, the lawyer's still taking a chance. You see what I'm saying? Because just by finding that one doctor is not going to make it a home run for the lawyer. Right. Yeah. So and it's yeah, still a gamble. And, you'd, still a and gamble. you'd imagine, and we don't know. See, this is the other thing is no one really knows all the new laws and regulations and everything that came out during the personal protection, business partnerships, public, private, this operation, warp speed, that, that at the end of the day, these companies are always going to fall back on, I think. We were following the CDC guidelines. The, the Dr. Fauci and the CDC, they were threatening our business license. But and a, guideline and a, a guideline and a mandate are two different things. And see, that's, that's, that's where... Uh, Take a guideline um, and call it a map, okay? So if I gave you a map of your city and and called it, uh, this is a guideline, how you would get from here to the delicatessen. It doesn't mean that you have to take that route to get there. So the fact that there's choice involved, okay, it's a mandate. Okay, so now you have some, you have some opinion from a reputable source, but you still have the final say over your employees and what they do when they come into the door of your business. Right. And so I still think that the last word of whether or not employees get punished for not getting the vax is on the hands of whoever runs that company and makes that decision. That's my guess. Because it wasn't like a federal... Now, the federal government had different rules also, right? You want to walk in their building, right? You got you have, you have to show the VAC. That's the federal government made that. So, but if I owned a store and I had 30 employees and one of my employees had been there for 25 years, the most loyal person in the world, but he had a, like a religious objection and I fired the guy because he didn't get vaccinated, would that guy have a case against me or not for back pay? Not right. For, not for him. Would he have a case against me for back pay as new information starts to come aboard as we're learning now more about the vaccines and the, and the virus and the bullshit and then the politics and then Fauci who just retired just coincidentally right before the Republicans took over the House they were going to grill the living shit out of him. He'll probably end up in a, in a country probably in the next month or two where he can't be subpoenaed, where he can't be deposed.
Yeah, well, he'll be set up uh, what yeah. was in the Bahamas next to yeah, uh, Sam right. Bankman yeah, Fry right. of the yeah. FTX. But no, but the so so in this hypothetical though, you'd end up having to get find someone who is the plaintiffs who who is injured by a vaccine. You'd have to find a doctor or doctors that would actually definitively say that the vaccine caused whatever happened to him, because you have to then be able to show damages, and then you'd have to be able to find a lawyer who's willing to gamble on this or someone willing to bankroll the lawyer to the tune of who knows a million dollars to get him through three four five six years of litigation because would you imagine a lot that's a lot of finding let me tell you that's a lot of looking and a lot of money to get to that point you know what i'm saying the only other time that you see situations like this is like if there's a case that's a prima facie, almost definite winner. And it gets you a decision, even though there's not a lot of damages. And it gets you a decision that you can then utilize in a bigger case that's going to cost you more money because the damages are more and the doctors are different. But you already have this other case that you got a decision from uh, and use it. To help you win the other case. Because if you just take on the most, as a lawyer, if you take on the most expensive case first, the biggest gamble, the biggest expenditure of money to end up with a defendant verdict, meaning you lose, you lose everything. You may not be a lawyer anymore. You don't have any money. Well, I I was going to say, so you haven't heard personally, you said, any lawyers that you know even talking about this which is crazy because you would think in the personal injury and med malpractice you know industries and stuff that you, i mean there's lawyers that are looking to make money everywhere they can state. that I haven't talked I'm, about I'm, I'm in a blue state my guess is if you ask this question to somebody who's coming from a different state that does what i do that might encounter lawyers in this and that you might have a better chance because you know what in the fruity state where i live in the fruity state where you are right now, you ain't going to find a lot of people that are going to go up against a win. That's what I was No, well, this guy, the legal man who's got the podcast, the Quas, he's in Texas. And he said, and he knows a lot of other lawyers. He's been in law for 40 uh-huh. years and has worked in criminal, personal injury, uh, everything else. He said, no. He said, because there's no lawyer that's going to gamble yeah. $2 million right. Right. hoping that Right, when right. when the whole entire right. culture and all of society has been turned to say the vaccine didn't hurt anybody, and that's what the government's stance is. So you're going against the government's narrative, yes. and the government told all the companies to do it. He said, so unless there's a big philanthropist, yes. uh, he said, now, I know people love to talk about right. uh, principles. You're talking about no, the lawyer. I'm no. talking about the plaintiff. Oh, yeah, no, you're I'm, not going to find any plaintiffs in your state or mine. They're all, all these fruitcakes. They friggin' took the needle. They probably oh, yeah. stuck it in their own ass yeah. like nine times because it felt good. I mean, basically, <laughs> when you think about it where are you going to get the plaintiffs that are going to go up and complain now they all lined up to get the friggin shot that they're walking around with fucking masks on still some of these people (laughs) yeah well that is true a lot of them i mean you know they like it so they're not going to go to a lawyer and complain they're probably going to complain when they're and when they they're when they are told to stop taking the booster. <laughs> That's probably when the complaints are going to start. That is That's true. Your, you don't care about my life. You're, you're telling me to stop taking a booster. I was getting used to it. Every three weeks, I would get a booster. and put it in different parts of my body. 
Uh, we still know people that get them all the time. I don't even know what they're up to now. Like, no, there, there's a five. I think I think people are up to like a total of five shots, two original and three boosters. There's a friend of a friend, <laughs> a friend of a friend that we know. You just walk around and stick pins in your. No, there's hour. a friend of a friend we know. Last, uh, what was it? Last uh, fall, we stayed at a cabin. Uh, Maggie and I stayed at a cabin with our friends, and this guy came. He was a friend of theirs, and he helped you know, cut the cost of rent in the cabin. And this poor guy, he's about 342 pounds. He looks like Chris Far, the late Chris Farley. And this guy, he works for the DOD, actually. Uh, Big-time alcoholic, and he was home working uh, remotely. And, and he was telling me how he drinks all day and he works for the DOD. DOD is a developer, but he runs numbers and he, it, it, what his system does is it puts quotes together. They're like quoting, uh, missiles. And I said, no wonder why we're getting charged like $800 for a hammer because you're the guy home drunk working on this. This guy was so deathly afraid of COVID before the boosters came out, he had gotten seven jabs his wife's a nurse he told us she doesn't know she would be really upset with him but he literally he said he slept with the pillows between him and his wife to make sure it wasn't going to pass over it's the first few months of COVID. he got two moderna original jabs two johnson and johnson's two pfizers and then there was some other one so it's i like said a porcupine yeah he actually like printed up and made a fake id to get in under different <laughs> names and stuff so this literally seven of them before the boosters you came. know what he did the days between the shots he was drinking no <laughs> uh, well he was drinking yes but you know what else he did he well, went to his acupuncturist oh yeah yeah, yeah. So he, he's like one of those guys that needs to have things stuck into him um, on a regular basis plus he has three cucumbers yeah. he carries the, la the last time we ran into him okay. a few months ago and i said to him <laughs> i said uh well first off i told him to stay back because i knew he was yeah, probably leading but he was telling fumes I'm, are coming off i'm not him. i'm not even kidding you though he said you know, the, I only got COVID twice since that. And he said... So it's and, working then. I guess it's working. Yeah, and he said, I, I know. And he said, I was only sick one of the times for like four or five days, the other right. six or seven. And he said to me, could you imagine right. if I didn't, I didn't have, have the seven right. jabs? <laughs> no, that's what they believe. Yeah, it's like a car hits you. Can you imagine? I broke my leg in two places, but can you imagine if I didn't get hit with the car, what would have happened? Yeah. <laughs> you asshole. It would have been fine to be playing basketball the next day. It's, I mean, it's outrageous. Uh, so, anyway, and this, so you have, and now you watch a lot of mainstream news. I don't. My audience doesn't really either. So, you have you heard anything on Fox or anything like that with any cases like this going on? Is anybody suing or anything uh, going on? Or is it people forget about COVID already? Is it over? No. Um, and over well, here on this show, it's known as well, COVID Land. The high school theater production, that's what we call it, because just, it is a high school theater production. Just this morning, Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, this very morning on Fox, which I was watching in my hotel room, they had two doctors on, one of which is Marty, I forget his last name, but he's a great guy, he's real sharp, he calls it the way it is, and they're talking now about what's going on in uh California plus this RSVP and the other 
uh, pediatric wards being filled and this and that. And uh, they, yes, they were talking about COVID. They were talking about um, that it's totally, completely, uh, 100% ridiculous to wear any mask unless it's a, a regular like N95 and it's a, a professional mask because the cloth masks don't work. Uh, but uh, California right now is contemplating. They've just made uh, an announcement that ma masks are... Uh, Re um, not required, suggested, and that they're right now they're on the border of whether they're going to re-mandate them or not in California. So that's why Fox had these doctors on talking about what's going on. And one of the doctors said that um, a majority of the uh, was it RSVP or RVP um, respiratory virus RSV. Yeah, it's pretty kind of pretty significant but basically it's something that as an adult with a healthy immune system is nothing more than a cold but for older people and babies babies no. without immunities it can be rather significant because they have constricted um respiratory systems and so there could be problems but the um a lot of these Pediatric wards that are filled with kids right now are more from the R RVP or RSVP. Or RSV. RSV. Yeah. Yeah. From that and not COVID. That's yeah. what these doctors. Now, these are guys that are calling it out the way it is. You know what I'm saying? There, there, there was like three or four doctors, uh, one of which is actually from Yale. And he's been on yeah. for the last year and a half on Fox. And uh, why he hasn't been fired for, by Yale, I, I can't imagine it. But like when I watched, you know, Fox uh, with uh, uh, Sean Tucker Carlson and the three the three biggies and um, uh, Jesse Waters, this guy I've seen on probably fifteen times, and he's from friggin' Yale University, and he's an epidemiologist, and the guy's real sharp and real smart, and he's called it like just the way it is totally against the grain of what everybody else is saying and he's still at freaking yale i'm saying holy christ this guy must have connections his mother-in-law or somebody must be like you know the president we call those those yeah, they haven't been shot and fired and arrested yet those are called controlled opposition he's there pushing something else so? yeah they walk you into a trap on the other side so if, if they, what they do is there's a lot of those guys they made covid real by pretending to be against certain elements but the job is to still still sell covid as real so you put an opposition out there like trump it's yeah. totally full of shit while he's yeah, selling that, the vaccine. that's easily overcome i yeah. see what you're saying yeah. but but that's no, their purpose. I, 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 That's their job. Well, That's what they get paid to do. Well, I, I can't say that about those guys because all three of these guys so far, everything they have said, because I've been watching Fox for years, but everything they have said starting two years ago all the way up to now has come to fruition. It's, it's true as far as how the jab... No, there, no there was no one on Fox two years ago saying that the jab wasn't going to work and what it did, what it did. That no, They no, did no, not I, start releasing I, that. I, Mike I, Moore I, I, was I, doing that two and a half years ago. Tucker didn't start didn't that until it. Fauci said this. You're and, talking and, about yeah. the talking heads. I'm talking mm. about the doctors. I, 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 in other words, these doctors, these... See, Three doctors that are not—they don't come on as a group. They're totally unrelated. They're in three different parts of the country. What I'm saying is, yeah. their analysis and assessment of things that have been occurring as this virus evolved 
each of them with whatever the subject was at that particular time. They wouldn't be on every day or every night, not like Fauci. They'd be on, you'd maybe see them once every three weeks or one, one of them would come on two weeks later. They'd be talking about new mandates and this and that. Everything they've said so far that I've heard them say about masks and about uh, about um, uh, COVID does not, you know, that the that the vaccine it does not make you immune, right. and that there's a difference between no. immunity. But you but you already well, caught yourself. They've been correct about it. And you already saying, caught that, yourself. You see I what? Trust, no, that's I what have trust in them. Their their purpose as controlled opposition was to do just what you said. You just said they predicted all the variations of the virus and what it did. The virus is never real. So they, their job is to well, sell either, the illusion. Either, either way. They're sell selling the, the illusion. illusion. But the illusion that they're selling is the one that I like. Well, that's the illusion. That's what they do. The illusion, there, there is no virus. Now, and uh, COVID is just a word that... Yes. That Fauci's uh, youngest granddaughter made up. No, it was made up crib. three months earlier during Event 201 that was hosted by Johns Hopkins and the Bill Gates Foundation. That uh, And now the next virus they have planned is for 2025 under Spars Pandemic. You can look that oh, what's up. What's the name of it? Spars Pandemic. That's their tabletop exercise. Yeah, they already right. ran on the 2025 virus that they're going to release. They've got to have shit to keep you in well, they do. Right now, it's Russia-Ukraine uh, wrestling act. Um, now, let me ask you this, because this is an important question here. So your gra grandfather, Willie Corolla, yep. right, he died with cash in his pocket, cash in his wooden chest, some stock certificates, owned his house and owned his car, yep. and he had a three-car garage full of broken-down metals that he would trade What's basically like stock. broken-down metals? You're talking about the guy had several thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah. back at that time. Well, he would trade yeah. scrap metal. Right, he would trade it like stocks. Yeah, yeah. 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 You look in the newspaper. Now, let me ask you. He did not, this is before the days, he did not use a computer, the internet, have a cell phone or any of that. That kind Correct. of stuff. So uh, let me ask Nor you. Nor did he use electric trimming shears. <laughs> exactly. Now, right. technology overall, plus or minus on society. Who, my grandfather? No, I'm asking you. Was he? Was he plus? Or? No, no, I'm saying technology overall. Is oh, it a plus so or minus on society? Well, I'm sure Willie died with all that in his pocket. <laughs> That's before the days of technology. Um, let me tell you. Right now, the harm that it's doing to generations and generations yet to come could very possibly outweigh, very possibly, it's a pretty, right now, a close call, but we're going to know more. But as dynamic and un unbelievably tremendous certain technologies are, the harm that it's doing to society could pretty much almost overcome the good that it's done it's hard because you have to you have to segment it into sections into little pieces what type of technology are we referring to so you take mris and cat scans and this and that phenomenal they find things that would have never been found years ago with x-rays okay so that's a technology that's 
helping and curing and saving and letting people live longer and spend more time with their grandchildren. But then you take that friggin' screen that everybody walks around with in their fucking hand and it totally takes them away from their family and the real world that's around them. That is the most, and dopamine's their brain to death. That is the most harmful thing in the friggin' world. Um, it just, yeah, it's great to be able to figure out who Hume Cronin is is when you can't think of the name of the guy who played in Cocoon. So you push three buttons and there's his picture, right? But look at all the harm it does when, 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 it, when it involves other things, when it involves um, a family being together, whether it be Disney World, a ball game, or in the car, and everybody's not together. Right. It's like, it's, if you give me subject by subject, I can tell you, but I, I have to say that it's definitely, it's definitely doesn't help society 100% and maybe not even 50% if you consider the, the negatives. Yeah. No, I would say the negatives look, look far away. Media, how it's ruined people, totally yeah. ruined people. There's totally fixated on looking at themselves on a friggin' screen all day long. Instead of getting up off their ass and doing something for themselves, their family, their country, their dog, their cat, their grandmother, you know, no, you know, look at that screen. It's a, it's like an addiction, man. It's like crack cocaine. Yeah, I mean, it's designed to be that way it by designed, the people that created it. It is designed mm -hmm. to do that, diabolically so. And they're collecting data on everyone while you're Without doing Without a it. doubt. And God only knows what that's all going to turn into. Oh, they already admit that. But the, but individually, I can see. Okay, yeah. Okay, we're going to market you, Brazier's, and you. No, they, they admit it's, No, they've no. already admitted that's no. not what it's about. No, no, that, that's that's what I'm saying. You've all know Harari you know, admits at the highest levels it's about how to, it's all designed to hack you and control you. You're a hundred percent right. Yeah, yeah. What? Well, well, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's the little short term, like follow the friggin' uh, light. That's the little short term to make you think. Oh well, that's all they do, so they can market you and this and that. No, 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 no. When you compile all that data all together in, in mass groups of people and this and that, you could actually forecast and predict human oh, yeah. behavior and and, 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 and and travel patterns and, and major giant issues uh, considering like politics and this and that, that's an issue, but also travel and, and weather and food you know, food shortages, water shortages, utility shortages. Well, you just track all that yeah. data. I don't have the capacity. Well, think, think about Google Maps. Google Maps was actually started, Google Earth and Google Maps was started by the CIA with InQtel Money. That's their venture capital firm. This is all admitted to right on their web. I mean, it's not hidden. They all It's open knowledge. Uh, so when people are getting in their car, 80% of which now their GPS is run by Google Maps, either on their phone or Google Maps powers the GPS that's inside your car, people just assume that that is getting you from point A to point B. Yeah. But it's not getting you from point A to point B. It's actually the entire traffic patterns of the world are now operated by the United States government, just like the United States controls through NASA all of the flight patterns of planes. So people go, oh, it just 
gets me from my uh, house to my sister's house. They're actually routing oh, through artificial oh, intelligence. The, 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 where the routing part. Yeah. Okay, okay, that I understand. Yeah, that's all run by the government. So right. when people get in their car and just think they're interacting with some GPS on their phone, that's all controlled by the government, the traffic patterns, where you're going and everything. That's all comes right out of right. the government. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, right, it, people trader, don't even realize that. Right, though. but the, okay, and 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 that probably applies to. Uh, what about ninety five percent of what you interact with on the internet? I was going to yeah. say eighty nine, eighty nine, and ninety five percent of the people. But those of us, and I'm in no way near technologically astute at all. But I know that it has its own reason for giving me something that I think is free. I'm not naive enough to think that I'm getting something for free. So I offset that knowing that I'm giving up something, but I make a choice. I don't care what I'm giving up because I think the reward is better than the loss. So when my navigator in my car tells me to go a certain way, I also know that I'm holding the steering wheel. Right. So that would scares me. For right. now. That's, that's <laughs> but, but all the mapping and driving uh-huh. you've been doing is being recorded on the other end, right. which is helping them develop the AI and to create I, the I, autonomous vehicle. That's the trade-off. That's yeah. the part I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm willing to give you the little bit of information mm-hmm. how I got to Juliet's today yeah. to get my fucking grinder. Yeah, listen to okay? this. If that turns you on, fine. But you ain't turning no. my steering wheel. No, check this out. You want to hear something real creepy? I don't know if you've run across this yet. But I know you had a situation with a bank that wanted you to download an app. They're trying to force you into it. But yeah. So Maggie today, uh, my wife, she gets her uh, six-month Geico bill. And it was like $140 more than it's been for the last 10 years. So she calls up Geico today. And she says to them, what the hell's going on? They said, listen, all the mechanic shops, everything are going up in price. Prices of uh, parts are going up. So we just had to raise it by whatever it was, 20%. She said, well, you know, she knows the game. She goes, is there a way you can do a discount? You know, is there a way? I've been a loyal uh, uh, customer for the last 15 years. And they said, well, we can give you forty nine ninety nine off, $50. But you have to download the app. I'm not kidding you. And allow us to track you everywhere you go, what you do, the places you go, and monitor you for three months. How about a and then, job? depending on where you go, then we might lower your rate. So it, it, now, just so everyone knows, you can most you people even say yeah. that to a person. Yeah, but most people that use their phones regularly, their smartphone, know this already. The app, any app that you download, whether it's Facebook. Twitter, Geico, your bank, they're tracking you at all times anyway, and they have the right to do it. And when you download a new app, Apple, and I don't know this on Android on Google's phone because I don't have one, but Apple will say, do you want to share all of your information with the app company or would you like them not to track you? And you click I like. Now, if you go look that up, it does not mean that you're saying you're not allowed to. You're just saying I'd like them not to. But they're still doing it. And this is how the app companies are trading information. But they're not taking from you a yes or no, right? Exactly. They're just asking your preference. Of course, course the lawyer that wrote that one paragraph 
They probably he probably worked for a law firm that they paid ten million dollars to for just for that one project that month. Yeah, well, it it, it came out not too long ago that Instacart, the uh, America's biggest grocery app, the one I used to work for, what they do is they're actually tapping into one your camera on your phone in your car and two the microphone and it's constantly running through artificial intelligence and transcribing what's going on so if they decide that for whatever reason you're distracted or you're racist or whatever it may be they can ban you from the app you won't even know how it was done it's because you're driving around letting them spy on you constantly they also know people do this thing called multi-apping where they'll have instacart doordash uber all running because it's not busy enough anymore so people work three or four different gig jobs they know when that's happening, and if they catch you doing that, they'll ban your account. Because oh, well. they want you to be a sole, solely, uh, solely aligned with, with theirs. Yeah. yeah, but they don't. They can't enforce that, so they enforce it. And but you're you're not. an independent contractor, so they can do whatever they want to you. Right. So and then you know, so it's crazy. But then on the other side of it. You know, you have the Democrats in certain states pretending they're for the worker and they're going to enforce these companies to hire you as an employee, which is going to be even worse because then you're going to work for Instacart delivering groceries for minimum wage at $7.12 an hour. Somebody else is going to shave the profit off the top and put it in their pocket. Right. And they're going to lock you at 32 hours so they don't have to give you health insurance. So we're stuck in this damned if you do, damned if you don't culture. I mean, I've talked about it on the show here. This is the danger that we're in now, because I talk a lot about the history of technocracy, which is ruled by the scientists and engineers. You have such a large portion now of this country, 56 million people as of one or two years ago, it was actually the pre-COVID numbers, are in the gig industry, either part or full-time. No, 56 million people are working either full or part-time. So that's the whole like service industry. They're moving into this gig work. Then you have all the creatives, graphic designers, artists, selling stuff on websites like Fiverr.com for almost next to nothing. It's like race to the bottom. Then you have all the live entertainment, like the stuff I used to book. So you take uh, artists that I would manage now are on websites trying to sell their service. You have people renting their houses on Airbnb. You have people renting their taxi services on Uber. You have people like me and uh, Mike doing podcasts, and we've got to syndicate it through big companies like Spotify. At the end of the day, there's such a huge portion of contractors that are now consolidated under these little tech companies. But when you look behind each of the tech companies, they're all owned by the same exact people. So you have a huge workforce of people now making money off the tech companies they can now regulate you throttle you how do you know if you're sitting there waiting to get a graphic design job at fiverr.com that they didn't just decide you're not making money this week like when it's all hidden behind algorithms and artificial intelligence imagine with your work if you were starting to be a pi today and everything relied on you joining a website called pi.com and hoping lawyers and you're sitting there all week going what the hell i made two thousand last week how did i not make money see the thing is when i was a cop and worked in that environment so say there was like 415 or 430 guys on the job you knew who was fucking you pretty much because they'd have a they'd have a bat a name tag on and you knew it was quote unquote the lieutenant or the captain in the world in which you just described you have no friggin' clue Right. And that person could be a one-eyed dwarf sitting in friggin' Taiwan, okay, on a porta potty, and he just fucked you, and you never know it. 
and you know you know and that and that's scary in and of itself the the one thing i've said and for some people it will never make sense because they've grown up in this environment and they're younger and this is all they know and and and, and as i knew Index cards, legal pads, Rolodex files, paper clips, staplers. That, that's the world I grew up in. Uh, photographs, which are pieces of paper <laughs> with pictures on them. Um, that's the world I grew up in. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll go down doing that because my brain works in that fashion. Your brain can function both ways, but people younger than you's brain functions in only one way, those screens and those buttons. But... For me, to this day, I still walk into a lawyer's office. I still look at them. I'll drive like 20 miles to pick up three pages of an accident report and an intake sheet and this and that. Well, it's got two or three purposes to it, but not necessarily is the reason I do it, but it's one, personal contact. Two, I actually get to see and talk to the friggin' people that I'm working for. Four, they know I'm alive. Then I'm not just like uh, letters that pop up on their email, okay? Five, they know that I'm still standing up and I don't have like a, a major disease uh, and, and this and that. And it creates a bond, a contact, a com, uh, and 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 that's just the way I will always work. And I find it sad that that world that we that existed since way before cowboy days and settler days, and you know, in the revolution and this and that, that world has disappeared overnight because of this technology. And I think it's extremely friggin' dangerous. Like I say, you can sit here and do a podcast right now and push buttons and lights and cameras. And, and oh, that's cool. That's like really unbelievable. Like if, if, if like a cowboy was sitting here right now from like 1842 and he saw what you're doing, he would think that you're on Mars and he was drunk on whiskey. Okay, because he wouldn't believe it. But look how much we've lost by doing that. All of those things that you were talking about, the vulnerability that you were just explaining, how the consolidation of all of these digital impulses moving across global spaces mm -hmm. can control a life, a breathing, human being with a heart that needs to make money and buy food and have shelter and, and pay for energy, and make you disappear over friggin' night because of what it is you think you're good at was just a dream. Fucked up. Yeah. My grandfather got up every morning, ate his fucking prunes, drank his black coffee, smoked three cigarettes, got in a truck, drove to the friggin' house, took the ladder out, 85, 90, 95 degrees humid, worked all day long slamming those shears together, built biceps on them like friggin' huge, drank his friggin' beer, got, the guy came home, put the money in his pocket, my grandfather got back in his truck and went home. He accomplished something that day, and he knew what he accomplished. He could go back and look at it. 
The hedges were all trimmed. His sweat of his shirt was wet, and the money was in his pocket. And with that money, he bought things, and he went to Florida, uh, you know, many times, and, and you know, didn't bought houses, two houses with cash. That was that. That was life. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, like what? Do, like, what are we trying to attain with, with this new world that we're in? Like, where are we going? Where are we heading? What, what, what's better than what my grandfather did, even though he did it in a crude, quote-unquote, primitive way? Everything he needed, he had. Everything he, food, you know, my grandmother, grandchildren, a family, you know, a truck, his beer, you know, on a regular basis. Everything was there. Like, what more do you need? You know, unless you plan to be like a multi-billionaire, which none of us will ever be, you know, one out of what, freaking... 500 million people might be a billionaire. The rest of us are just regular working people. Well, yeah. But to be at the mercy of all of this technology, but from people whose faces you never see, it's scary. Well, I think you could see. The further that humans move away from what humans' DNA was wired to do, which was to hunt and gather and basically just protect your family. And remember, people lived in little cabins miles away from other people they weren't stacked on yep. top you very very rarely a couple hundred years ago even ran into anyone else yep. and so the technological world they've moved us into people are not evolving fast enough which is why the guys at the top the yuval noah hararis the elon musk and they talk about re-engineering humans and splicing their dna and putting chips in their head because the only way you're going to fit into this crazy world that they're building and evolving fast enough to live in it is they have to modify you now because humans still are not wired like you said with your grandfather willie carolla he would have a goal. He'd go out that day, you work really hard, and you come back with your prize. In his case, he would get cash, and he'd go to the grocery store and buy food. The generation before him would go out in the woods. That was their work for the day. They'd kill a deer and come back. Or, or maybe not. Or maybe not kill a deer. <coughs> oh, therefore, yeah. get up the next morning and really look for right, a deer. And right. then eventually, if they couldn't find a deer, they'd be eating gourds. But right. either, way, either way, they were in direct contact with what their goal was right and right now we you're filtered two three four five maybe eight hundred friggin' steps away from whatever's making all this work oh yeah you have no control over no every day plugging it in the wall every day it's another problem right well and they can cut off your ad revenue i mean somebody yes i'll talk about it eventually but somebody you know in this network just got screwed but i mean you know Ted Kaczynski, who wrote Industrial Society and its Future back in 1995, talked about just this. And what it is is the battle between technology and humanity, and technology will win because technology's end logical conclusion is to destroy humanity. And what we're losing is really human autonomy. And as you can see, people think... I run into a lot of them. People that work for Instacart, they were a school teacher before COVID. Then COVID, they started doing this. Then they were making 1600 a week. And they said, that's more I make as a teacher, so I'm not going to go back. 
they f- believe they're going out there and they have their own job or business, but you don't have your own business. You're at the whim of Instacart. The customers are not yours. The jobs that come to you are not the yours. The food isn't yours. Yeah. You're delivering. Well, and, and all of a sudden, they get cut off or they go from making 400 a day down to... I ran into a couple people today when I went to the grocery store. They told me that they struggle to make $100 a day on Instacart now. They just sit in the parking lot for three, four hours and no jobs are coming in, yet they see other shoppers going in meaning instacart is throttling you they're sending jobs to some people and not to other people so i said well what are you going to do i mean you can't go from making 16 1700 a week to 500 like how and and a lot of them don't know what to do because they just spent the last two years of their life sitting in that parking lot working for instacart most of these people just end up now downloading doordash they try to bounce around to different gig apps but um if you're not necessarily skilled you're not going to go find a job making fifteen sixteen hundred dollars well, anymore you know the, the most i think the most um time sensitive factor of this whole hu- human situation is that the clock is ticking in such a way that with one more full generation of people, meaning your son's age group, once he reaches fruition, meaning, say, he's 30, basically, this world that you and I are talking about before, about my Oh, it'll be a race. Yeah. That will almost, yeah, that will, right. That will almost be anyone who talks about that will be put in an insane asylum if we open them again. In other words, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? That's like you and me talking about cavemen. Actually, that's probably a good analysis. We're talking about about cowboys. We're talking about cowboys. Well, I was saying cowboys, but put it this way. For the next generation, for you and me talking about my grandfather, for them, it would be like cavemen. Weren't those like cavemen? Like, that's how far away it will be. Oh, yeah. For for the reality of the world that they live in. Right. Well, if you you talk to people, because I, I always say I was the last generation to not grow up with the internet in my pocket. So I didn't have a smartphone until I was in my 20s. So I don't think we got a computer, and and Mom was just talking about it the other day, that because she was in telecom, she was one of the first people she knew that bought a home computer. And she was telling me that you and your sister really weren't even into it. Like, I tried to plug it into the old uh, dial-up AOL internet. You guys would go on there once in a while, but you didn't really care. And so, uh, but yeah, if you start to talk to people about pre-internet in their house, that's like cavemen to people born today or born in the last 20 years, really. So, so linking that technological phenomenon in comparison to the analog world that I grew up in and will continue on. That's why I'm a dinosaur, literally. I ain't changing. I mean, like, it was a big thing for me to get a 4G phone. I mean, like, I almost, like, had a... Like how to get like blood pressure, but you see how at the end they won. They engineered you into it. How do they do it? How do they do it? 
They stopped making the 3G. See, yeah. it's just like with oh, a, yeah. it just would be with like no, self-driving no. electric right. vehicles. People go, I'll never get one. You right. go, well, when uh, they get rid of all the other cars and they say I, you have no choice. I agree That's how they engineer it. Hey, look, when they when they stop making oxygen, I guess I'm going to have to breathe methane or something. You don't have to you worry about that. that. They're just going to tax the carbon, <laughs> the uh, breath. No, there's this really interesting story poor that will, the, this, poor Willie. this poor guy. Poor Willie. No, no, well, I'll tell you this. We made a dis- Maggie and I made a decision, and I've talked about it on the show. The way we're actually going to raise him, what we're going to be focused on, and one of the reasons why we're homeschooling, why is, is wind we are going to raise him. Don't worry, but we're going to raise him from everything from Amish to computer programming. Uh-huh. Because by the time he is... Now, if you meet some of these truly homeschooled kids, they're 13 years old. You'd think they're 18 years old. They're just so much more intelligent. So by the time he's 13, 14... And look, he may decide I want to put a brain chip in my head and go live inside of the metaverse. Well, that's his decision if he decides that's what he's going to do. He may decide I'm going to grow an Abe Lincoln beard and go live with the Amish and churn butter. But I think to be a responsible parent in today's world, not being able to predict what everything is going to look like 15 years from now, because once in the next couple of years when technology hits exponential growth, it will look completely different five years, 10 years from now. But if you're going to raise your kid and teach him everything from uh, how to survive like the Amish and like a hunter uh, and giving them those skills if they decide they want to yeah. be like Ted Kaczynski and live in the woods, but also teaching them the Internet and computers as a tool for computer programming and things of that nature, now you've given them such a wide yeah, range of skills. Use, right, when they turn well. 13, 14, 15, they right. can decide which Correct. direction they want Correct. to go in. What you because you can't raise them totally. Rarity, what you just yeah. described, that your son will be in a minority, which is cool. It's a great minority to be in because you're giving them survival skills. What I'm saying is he's going to be surrounded by other kids who, for one reason or another, I've never been given that alternative, that opportunity yeah. to move the whole spectrum well, that, that's, from survival that, to yeah, yeah. technology. Well, that's part of the reason why we'll be hanging out with the homeschool co-op kids, because we found out here, there's such a large group, and so Maggie's doula, Alyssa, and her husband, uh, Chad, they have three kids. Uh-huh. So they've been part of, they've always homeschooled from day one, but they're part of what's called a co-op. So there's a hundred other families in that co-op. And so, uh, and all the, like her, uh, her husband, Chad, he is the head mechanic at a Volkswagen dealership. So they brought all these kids in for like a week and they learned how to take engines apart. So that a lot of the parents that have special skills, the kids, That's you know, cool. by the time they're 10 That's years like old, they've shot. been introduced to yeah. 15 different uh, right. industries. So. Right. We have, I mean, like we used to do that, like with Cub Scouts, remember, yeah. like we would go to different of the dad's businesses and learn a little remember when i took you guys all (laughs) tour the police station yeah you know like that was like my thing i could bring all the kids and show them what happens when you're a bad guy type of thing but yeah i think that's a great i think that that's just that's just human that's human nature that's like you take indians i mean you know they took their friggin' kid out and you finally make your bones when you kill whatever you got to kill you know lion a tiger a beer or a buffalo or whatever you know that's the way it should be because that's the progression of growth you know of adulthood and unless there are people that still believe in it there will be no one left to teach that right Exactly. I mean, once we lose those who, like, 
if you fast forward your son, if he if you go through the process that you described, and he has a kid, he'll probably do the same thing. But other kids won't. So now that, like now that's like completely gone. Yeah, because we've lost it. We've lost that connection. No, I would say yeah, it's the vast minority. But it, you know, it's interesting too because we talk to other parents that are more. You know, they hand their kid an iPad when they're in the grocery cart just to shut them up. Yes. And then they... Uh, That's what I saw. You know, the then they, they bring the them home and they... Laundromat. Yeah, they bring them home and hook them up to the video yeah. game so they'll leave them alone. Yeah. But it's funny, some of those people, because I'll, I'll get in conversations with them and I don't... I just... I'm always like sucking intelligence out of people so what i find with those a you lot know, of them that's why i'm here i know well i find a lot of them <laughs> you know and i'll talk to them and, and i go oh really yeah and they go yeah but you know what my one son dave the little son of a bitch he won't play the games he's always sneaking out the back trying to play in the woods yeah, we tell him don't go outside we tell him, yeah we tell yeah. him don't go outside there's bad people out there and we try to get him back in there's but, animals and, so, there's, and there's air out there so too, see there's there, air Stay yeah, away from the air. But see, there's still something in some people's DNA that's wired to actually be out there in the natural world. Maybe that that's, they reject maybe that. that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe it's supposed to be just a minority of potential leaders. I mean, maybe we're not supposed to have, a po out of a population of 100 people, if 94 of them were all destined to be leaders, we would kill each other. So maybe, like the alphas or the intellectual alphas, whether they be physical or intellectual, yeah maybe there's only supposed to be like a, a moderate amount like one out of every thousand that's maybe the way you know George Patton ended up where he was you know he didn't have to kill other people Job. But unfortunately, what happens? Unfortunately, what happens now though is leader is synonymous with a wolf because I think most of the people that want to rise up, like being a wolf that wants power, versus being say a benevolent leader. You end up in the same place because anyone who, like say myself, who rises up to be a leader realizes the system is so corrupt and on yeah. top of it, let's be honest, but the 99% of people that you want to lead and help are a bunch of sheeple assholes. But so when you get to the top, you go, fuck it, I'll screw these people because I'm wasting my time trying to save a bunch of people that don't want to be saved or trying right. to wake up a bunch of people that right. like to be asleep. But to, but to be a leader... You do need to be powerful because the challenge to that leader will, will come one way or another. And though power was not the reason that the leader became a leader, power is an element of what he would need to continue to I've lead never... because he will be challenged. He will be challenged, and, and, and the challenge will come, you know, whether it's uh, intellectual or physical or, you know, take whatever uh, avenue you want. He will need a way to overcome, and that power could be and will be challenged, but could be intellectual power. It could be physical power. It could be obstinance. It could be persistence. But, but, he, but there would have to be a part of that person's makeup that would say, I'm going, I know I'm right, I'm bringing these people with me, and I need to power my way through it, put it that way to a certain extent. Those who just want power, 
say like a Fauci or you know a, say like uh, anyone politician, everyone politician, or, you know, every politician ever. wants power oh, everyone why would you want to be a politician unless you want power? No, the only people who rise to power are the ones who want power no one rises to power mm -hmm. that does not want power it's right. and, and everyone it's like a food well, and, and right. everyone who wants to be left alone that's an individualist it just says leave me alone let me live my life they don't end up in positions of power so in the, someone's homeowner association the crazy lady who walks around yelling at people about planting their flowers too close to the curb yep. she's the president of the homeowners that's association true, yeah. because she wanted to be president of the homeowners association right. and she wanted reason. to break people's balls right. exactly. about their flowers right and so, not only that one the people that are real sick that have power okay like the president of the homeowners association <laughs> she may have nothing against flowers but there was nothing to do that day to exert her power she could find no other productive reason so she picked on the fucking flowers to prove to continue to prove to herself that she has power that's all that, that's, it is that's exactly what and that's what masks were all about and that's what friggin mandates were all about that's what this game was all about to shoot show how powerful Lori Lightfoot is, the lesbian black dwarf mayor of friggin' Chicago yeah. with the highest friggin' crime rate in the world, okay? She wants power, yeah. okay? And the power, because she's a dwarf, because she's black, because she's a lesbian, and because she's crazy, the power is what she lives for. Some people live to see yeah. their grandchildren. Some because they like the ocean and swim. Some people well, that, like the fish. They're, these are the group of people that like friggin' power. Period. Well, well, that's why those people are installed into those positions because yeah, the people. No, no, because the elites above them, the people that own somebody like Lori Lightfoot, want her there because they know when they want to institute a worldwide COVID high school land theater yeah, production, that someone like her yeah. will gladly get on board. Yeah. See, a lot of what we were talking about before too yeah. was uh, I was it's, talking about the money like, that, that trickles down. See, the guys at the top have to create buy-in. Right. So we've been doing a lot of work here on the climate hustle and uh, all the documents out of the UN where they admit that the CO2 pollution is fake and they admit that they're never going to end oil and gas and they admit they don't have the resources to build solar panels and EV cars and everything to replace it. But what happens is when they create this whole 25-year climate hustle grift industry Which it is. there's now tens of millions of people worldwide who work in the industry and then their families rely on them to bring home food and then right. their cousin knows right. before you know it there's 187 million people part of a fake industry Correct. but they created buy-in so now those people go along with it right. just like covid you might not believe right. it's real yeah. but you sell masks at your grocery store and you make ten thousand dollars a week way, so now you're in you're in the on only, the game the only way that works is if you have the political power to fool the masses to provide the revenue that's necessary to keep the griff the scam going because you've got to feed these people to become part of the program by by hanging carrots in front of them. We'll give you this contract, we'll give you that contract, we'll give you this job, we'll give you that job. So you really, really need to control the masses. So this whole like infrastructure, $1 trillion infrastructure bill, well, that that's the prime example of what you're talking about. Yeah. In that infrastructure bill, 
There's all this fucking green, you know, green yeah. climate bullshit, which is nothing but a scam. Because my, I've told you before, my goal, if there was ever any way to possibly have a chance of informing the public, and I don't mean the, the upper echelon of those who pay attention. I mean the majority of 75% of the people that don't have a friggin' clue. Not because they're bad people, not because they're stupid people, but because they're busy surviving. They're living for their kids and this and that. It's a program, a show. I mean, you know, you see, like, there's Jeopardy and, you know, uh, who can sing this song and know that voice and dancing with the stars and all this yeah. shit that attract people. A show uh, with two people, one on one side, one on the other, and they debate an issue, an issue that's extremely important so that all of the facts come out, so that people hear both sides of the story and realize how ridiculous, say, for instance, climate the climate shit that we're going. Have the facts come out that you guys are scamming people and you're ripping them off and you're charging so much for energy that will never be around, that you haven't built enough solar yeah. panels, that you will never build enough wind farms, that wind farms take up too much land, they kill too many friggin' birds, they create too much problems. Yeah, people don't know this. And, and right. the thing is, it's working against us every day that goes by that people don't know because they keep buying in oh, people yeah. buy into it they're buying into it and the more they buy into it i i agree with you we reach a point we reach a point of of, of no return we reach a point where too many people have bought into it take yeah. the bottle and can well, bottles and cans yeah. bottles and cans cycling recycling you see what's happening with recycling yeah. Only fucking mongoloids sit there and fucking wash their cans and bottles and sort them out and put them here and there and left and right. And they right admit ninety percent of the stuff goes into the landfill anyway. I know that. I'm just saying yeah. they they sold that. Yeah. But it failed because a lot of people like me woke up. I used to take every friggin' beer can and soda can, bring them in my dark room, and wash every one of them out. Do you realize that every twelve ounce can of a beer or water, I'd probably spend 15 or 20 or 30 or no, 15 or 20 ounces of water run through it to fill it, to turn it upside yeah. down, to pour the water out. So now when I got all through and I had a bag full of 12-ounce cans, you know how many gallons of water I just took out of my friggin' well <laughs> to wash those? Now what's yeah. worth more? The nickel, the can that they stole from me to begin with, and I'm just getting back. I'm not getting. I'm not yeah. getting anything. It's like your taxes. Or all the water, the yeah. water which is most important. It's the life survival yeah. element. All the water I just wasted yeah. washing out yeah. the stupid soda can. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. and people buy into that. They 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 don't think through. This well, what, shit. what what happens is they get a large number of people to buy into it, and then they get another large percentage of people. Whether it's climate change, it's uh, soda cans. Or it's COVID land, the high school theater production. They get a large percentage of people who just end up giving in because you become desensitized to it. So finally, you just pull up the mask and you walk in the store because you don't feel like getting in a fight with the guy that you yelled at last week. Mm -hmm. And they count on that. But they literally will stand there, the government people, the elites, and they'll keep 
pointing up at the sky and telling you it's neon green and you'll say no it's blue and they'll say it's neon green it's neon green and before you know it this 40 percent of people that know it's blue just go yeah you know what it's neon green let me go in the grocery store i gotta go shopping you know like, why leave me alone you know why one because the neon green guy that's saying it is getting paid for saying it and or is mentally ill okay and the other people are just they don't have the time to put up with the bullshit well I so that's what it is well i tell this story all the time and i blue, the people that are saying no yeah. it's blue they're not getting paid for saying that it's blue yeah. they're just telling you it's blue i'm going shopping this guy is blue the neon green guy that's persistent that keeps following yeah. him in yeah. and telling him he's getting fucking oh yeah, yeah no it's like the people you just yeah. talked about yeah. all of the jobs that are yeah. given out you put up a windmill, well, you know, and it's a high-paying yeah. union job. You'll be making thirty-eight dollars an hour to put up a fucking windmill. Guess where the windmills come from? Guess where we get the turbines from? A country called China. You ever hear of China? You don't know anything about China, do you? No, they make more than Chinese food. No, that no, they're gonna own the fucking world in like two years. But you know, we get our uh, turbines yeah. from them. You want to put up more of them? Give yeah. more of your money. Yeah, that's that's how stupid people. No, I tell the the story all the time. I remember specifically watching television back when the BLM, the Black Lives Matter riots, kicked off with the Michael Brown incident. And Don, this is back when reporters used to still at least pretend to be on the ground reporting. And Don Lemon was standing on the street, and behind him, literally burn. like buildings were burning down. And he stood there and he goes, <laughs> "I'm here in a peaceful that's protest." A that's a famous. I'm at a Peaceful That's a protest. famous clip. That I mean, two plus two. Fox yeah. must show that yeah. at least once yeah. every two or three weeks. But I remember he got hit in the head that night. It was like the first night he got hit in the head with a glass bottle, like oh. a beer bottle. The next night yeah, they had him. In, no, he was in the. They had like a shark, oh. the diver shark cage, uh, and he was in there reporting, yeah. still yeah. telling people that he was at a peaceful protest. Right. It, it reminds me of um, <laughs> some kind of a, a comedy movie or something with like yeah, Leslie like Nielsen. Yeah. We're behind him yeah. is football, but he's yeah. announcing a baseball game, yeah. and then until you believe that you're watching the baseball game, <laughs> that's what these guys do. They sit there and they go, two plus two is five. Two plus two is five. Until all the normal people. Just just say fine yeah two plus two know, is five i have to like go i say he's getting paid for the guy yeah. with the green sky is getting paid yeah for those are the propaganda over and over yeah. and over he that's his job those are the propaganda we, we will give you 14 million dollars a year to say this guy is green that's all we want you to do every day get on tv and say this guy is green eventually we will convince the blue sky people probably eight million of those and then once we convince them guess what we could sell them COVID shots. <laughs> Masks. <laughs> Masks. All right. Well, anyway, we got to wrap up. Uh, right, soon. Wrap Is there anything up. else uh, you want to share with this audience today? Anything? Uh, what kind of depends do you wear? What well, brand I have is that? One question. None of no. this was taped. Was yeah, it? this was. Uh, I taped. thought we were just bullshit. You said this was a warm up. And we are not sponsored by Heineken on this show, folks. But I do have to remind you. <laughs> Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review and a comment over there, folks. If you'd like to leave a donation, it's donorbox.org slash Show, or you can join pain.tv slash gold. You can join the basic or the hotwire. You get the ad-free video version to this podcast, the Dustin Gold Standard, as well as the Thomas Payne Podcast and access to a like-minded group of individuals on a Facebook-like website and mobile application where you can share intelligence back and forth with folks so is there anything else you'd like to say uh before you check out of here and i throw you out onto the street
Um, well, maybe we should do it just this way. Uh, first of all, in, in light of being completely honest, you know, and now your audience should know, I'm not your father. <laughs> you did this morning give me $10. <laughs> You bought me some beer. <laughs> you forced me to sit in your cellar and say stupid shit. Now, if you could bring me back to the homeless shelter, <laughs> and I'm never doing this again. I learned uh, it. You know where I learned this? I actually, because I stole this business model from Howard Stern. That's what he is to do. <laughs> In fact, the guy sitting next yeah, to me, no, not only is he a homeless alcoholic. No, no, I'm not, a, I'm a, and I'm not an Asian one-eyed dwarf either. No, I was going to say, he's not only a homeless alcoholic. I have him sitting about three feet in front of me, closer <laughs> to the camera, because he is a dwarf. <laughs> so after this, we're going to do an after-hours show where I lock him in a trunk Bing. and leave him out in downtown D.C. and see if any politicians stop to save him. Bing, three feet. <laughs> foot 10 inches tall <laughs> and a police officer in new haven i did have many challenges <laughs> all right ladies and gentlemen that's it i hope you had a great thanksgiving and a wonderful black friday where you bought a bunch of useless shit that you didn't need folks because that's america that's freedom that is what freedom is hey, all just about so consumers. you know what a progressive town does i was in the center of um frederick uh, at 11 o'clock this morning and I pulled up to a parking meter and they have all the parking meter uh, slots where you throw the quarters in with green stickers on them saying free today, frosty Friday. They don't call it Black Friday in uh, Progressive Town. Frosty Friday. I never heard of that at all. I thought I was going to get like a drink or some shit. Frosty Friday. Every parking meter. Frosty Friday. <laughs> free today. What the hell is Frosty Friday? Have you uh, ever heard of no Frosty idea. Friday? No. These are words that these these are words that are being made up. I guess you can't say the word Black Friday in Frederick, Maryland. We'll call it Frosty Friday, even though it's fucking 58 degrees. <laughs> no, well, I'm glad you brought up progressives, though, because the last few shows, and we're going to pick this back up tomorrow, folks, we're covering the progressive era from 1890s to the early 1920s, specifically the wonderful eugenicists that grew out of the progressive movement, the economists of that time, focused on sterilizing and killing individuals in this country who they believe to be unfit and unemployable. Wow. Of course, we've showed you how they orchestrated unemployment when they created the minimum wage to drive people that they deemed to be unfit out of the workforce. And then that gentleman we were reviewing, Professor Tausig out of Harvard University, who gave the speech and said... Well, we can't chloroform all these people right now, so we'll stick them in asylums and forcibly sterilize them. So we'll pick that back up tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. You are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. Back to the homeless shelter. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion.
at pain.tv slash gold.